Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available for free. You can listen to all of it for free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. It was a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, 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 hey. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. I am in Los Angeles. I'm like watching the Brewers versus the Dodgers as I'm doing this. I'm a huge Milwaukee Brewers fan. I grew up, you know, cheering for the Brewers. I say I'm a huge fan. The truth is that I haven't had much to cheer for for the past, oh, 35 years. But when I was a kid, they were really good. That's kind of the last time they were this good. And now they're good. They could go to the World Series. And I'm watching baseball, uh, and I'm just riveted. And I just want to give a shout-out to postseason baseball. I know this isn't a sports podcast. I know most of you probably aren't sporty. You're book nerds. You don't give a shit. But try watching a playoff baseball game. Every pitch matters. There's like this real uh, tension and excitement. It's excellent. So uh, anyhow, I hope you're doing well. I have Christy Coulter on the program. She has an essay collection out that's available from MCD slash FSG Originals. It's called Nothing Good Can Come From This. And it's about sobriety. It's about drinking and quitting drinking. And she and I had a great conversation. We got into all sorts of things. And I'm going to get... I'm going to get you right to that. Does that sound good? Uh, here's my conversation with Christy Coulter. Her essay collection, one more time, is called Nothing Good Can Come From This. I didn't want to write a chronological, like I was born in 1970, kind of memoir. It just wasn't interesting to me. Like, like, And I had read, so Claire Dieter is a friend of mine, and her book Poser was really interesting to me in that she takes a different yoga pose as each chapter's theme. Oh, right. Yeah. And so she kind of moves forward in time, but she also looks at her life 
through the prism of yoga in a bunch of different ways. And so I thought, well, that seems like more fun. So I was really concerned with what would be fun for me to write. And then I figured I'd worry about whether it's going to be that's fun for no- people to read later a, on. That's a novel idea. Yeah, exactly. You're actually worried about fun. It's like, I'm going to spend two years writing this. I, I want to kind of enjoy it. You're not just going to torture yourself. No. And like the rest you of get us. plenty of that, right? I mean, there was plenty to come. I thought at least try to front load or try to bias toward fun. So I just wanted to look at drinking, but especially sobriety, um, or more broadly, like what happens when you take away the one thing you can't, you think you can't live without. I wanted to look at that from a bunch of different angles and doing it as essays seems to seem to be the best way to do that. So let's talk about your drinking mm-hmm. and then your decision to quit drinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously writing is a, it's well-documented that this profession is fraught with mm-hmm. peril when it comes to substance abuse. That's kind of, I mean, it's a cliche, the hard yeah. drinking writer or whatever, but I think the, you know, the issue obviously transcends, it goes beyond Um, for you personally, like started as a teenager. Yeah, I think I was 16. I was actually very afraid of drinking before that, not of people drinking in general, but just my own drinking. I remember when I heard that boy George had like a drinking and drug problem, I was devastated. Um, As were we all. We were all just shocked. I was shocked more to the point, which seems kind of funny now. But yeah, I think I was at a party and somebody gave me a wine cooler and I was nervous. Bartles and James? Yeah, of course. Yeah. (laughs) Are there... There's also Seagram's, I guess that's the other one. And I was like, not nervous anymore. And I thought, well, this is great. So I found a solution. So, you know, I drank in high school, um, weekends, parties, that kind of thing. Um, And then in college, and then I just never really stopped. I think what happened is I I drank the way a lot of people drink in college. And then other people stopped drinking the way they drank in college once they're not there anymore. And I just didn't. You just kept rolling. Yeah. I was like, it's still undergrad. It was still undergraduate <laughs> years. This is great. Well, I think back to my own, I mean, I've, I've actually talked on this show about drinking mm-hmm. and my drinking and like thought through it aloud. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, you know, uh, I guess sensitive about it and just wanting to make sure. Yeah. Like, is this like, I only have like a glass or two of wine a day, but like, why am I doing that every day? Right. I had that sort of thought and then I stopped. Mm-hmm. I was kind of checking myself, but it's not, you know, it's not something that I'm, I can engage in without having feelings of guilt or concern or self, you know, it's just my nature. Like just wondering why you're just doing wondering it. why, yeah, yeah. wondering why, like, why, why do I need this? Or do I need this? Right. Or why do I think I need this? I've known people who quit because they were having one or two a day, which I'm like, Hey, <laughs> go for it. That's nothing. I mean, I'm, the way I used to drink and, but they were like, I needed it too much. And it really scared me. And I thought if I need it this much now, what's it going to be like in 15 years? And, um, so they quit and they actually identify as alcoholics, even though they were drinking what, you know, even medically, well, now there's new studies saying that really no drinking is great for you. It fluctuates. Right. It, yeah, that that sort of again. shit bugs me. Yep. Like I, you know, I was just having a conversation with like an uncle. He was in town and he was talking about diet and he was asking, cause I'm a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. He was like, you, you still a vegetarian? Yes. And he's like, have you read so-and-so? And it was like some author who like basically was saying that like, if you eat plants, they're terrible for you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, I was like, you know what? You can Google anything yeah, and yeah. get either a justification for or against that seems very convincing. Oh yeah. Actually the other day, a Facebook friend posted a link to a study like a real study, double blind, long-term that showed that diet just might not matter that much at all. 
if you're yeah. at a certain baseline, yeah, um, and you basically are, you know, eating decent food, like whether you eat carbs or meat or plants, it's you know, it's more about your genetics. It is. It's well, a you, relief to see it. I'm sure they'll they'll change their minds again. But. Well, but I mean, that's consumption too. Mm-hmm. Like all of these things are tied together, whether it's food or drink or drugs or money mm-hmm. or sex or media. Mm-hmm. Or social media. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. these things are all of a piece to me. Um, and I think you could make the case that any of them, um, you know, people use them to anesthetize pain. Yeah, or to, you know, there's like this sort of void that we're all afraid of. I'm afraid of it anyway. Um, and we think we can fill it. And I don't I don't think you can actually fill it. What, what do you mean by the void? Well, it's just like the, there's so much unknown there's so much unknown in the world. The future is kind of scary. Certainly these days, the future is scary. Death? I mean, is it death? death? Yeah, I think ultimately it's death. Like, I don't particularly want to die. Do you? No, the process of dying doesn't right. sound enjoyable. I think being dead, I'm less worried about. I think I'm getting there. I think like being dead, I don't think I'm going to have any... I think I'm just going to go wherever I was when I was born. That's my suspicion. Right. It's like wherever, like if there was some existence or like chain of existence that I was a part of before I manifested in this form, I'll go back there. And I have no recollection of it. Mm-hmm. It was apparently fine. It was apparently fine. <laughs> right, right. You know? Yeah, yeah. But what do I know? I just, I have no idea. I feel like, you know, the pain and um, suffering that go along with being ill, mm-hmm. the emotional pain of saying goodbye to loved ones in, in the world. I mean, you know, that's yeah, going to be sad. That's going to be sad. It's really sad. Even though the world can be a really difficult place, it's, I still rather, you know, I, I like it. I like being here. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I think it's, it's fear of death. It's fear of, yeah, the dying process, um, of the unknown. I mean, I'm an anxious person just by temperament. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that I kind of wanted to drink to sort of engineer my own experience. Like I kind of wanted my whole life to be like a montage uh-huh. in a movie and I would use drinking to kind of dial it up and dial it down and try to make all my experiences perfect. Like an action movie? No, a like, a, like a romantic comedy, probably. Okay. You know, where people are just, they're in, in nice places, eating glamorous food, laughing with their heads thrown back. Like Nancy Myers. Yeah. Like everyone's, yes. everyone's wearing pashminas and <laughs> right. chunky knits. And just like lives in a beautiful house in Cape Cod or something. Right. Right. <laughs> Giant eight burner wolf range. You know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yes, that's what I want. That is the dream. <laughs> Don't we all want that? Yeah. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. 
Um, but you know, I think back, uh, to adolescence and the role that alcohol plays for most kids, at least American yeah. kids and, uh, you know, high school and college, you know, it's, it's a social lubricant. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, you know, if you're, I think everyone's a little anxious at that age. Yeah. If you're not, then I, but it's also like, you know, you're so hormonal mm-hmm. and like, I remember just being social and like not having any clue how to talk to girls right? and being in parties. And like, all of a sudden you, you know, all of your inhibitions go down and mm-hmm. like your, all your fears go away. Yeah. It and enables it, you to act and sort of to kind of, it's ironically to act naturally, but you act like a fucking asshole. Well, right. Too. But you don't know that at the yeah. time. It's the <laughs> blessing of it is that you don't know. I know. But I look back and I'm like, God, like it's just a dipshit. Yeah. And just embarrassing. Yeah. You know, I guess most people go through that, but I, I was just telling a guest recently, like I still look back and just like, I feel like real pain thinking back to how stupid that was. <laughs> but the, the people that you were with were your age probably were also drinking. In sure. That so a they, lot of them were more fucked up than I was. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like there's this group absolution. I think you have to just absolve each other. Like, yeah, we were 16. We we're total fucking idiots. And we were doing our brains or, or weren't 20. even formed, or twenty or thirty-five, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I get specific. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, yeah, you do, it's interesting now because I'll be around people who are drinking, and like the first drink, two drinks, you know, they're they're totally fine. The third drink is like the tipping point for most people, unless they have extraordinary tolerance, where they start they talk louder, um, they start to repeat themselves at like the third drink. I had mm. no idea. Because I always thought I could have six drinks and be just fantastic. <laughs> Great company. Um, they get emotional sometimes, like some crying will start. It just doesn't take as much as people think. And I can be in a position now to observe this. I don't observe it for very long because it really bores me. It's also annoying. It's depressing and annoying. Yeah. It is. Like to be the sober person, like not even if you don't even have to be like officially sober. Right. But right. just to be the person who's not drinking or is yeah. not fucked up and to be surrounded by people who are drunk, drunk people. <sighs> are annoying. It's, it's they're really annoying. You, um, yeah. And you don't have to be like, quote unquote, sober. You're just not drinking that night. And it, it's like, you're all in one place together and then they go someplace else and you, but you can, you still have to listen to them yell, right? You know, you can't just be alone and read your book. Um, you know, I, I gave myself permission really early on to just leave. Um, because it was touch and go. It's like, well, I don't want to drink. So you can just leave a party whenever. And I kind of still do that. Just ghost it. Yeah. Like you don't even it. say like with someone I was yesterday, I was at an office function and somebody's like, I'm going to do the Irish goodbye. Yeah. Is that what it's called? It, I, I only heard that from Daphne, my editor, uh, recently Irish goodbye. You just leave. Yeah. You're, I got to like get into that. I, I always feel like my wife is the worst. She stays at a party. She's the last one. And I'm always like looking at my watch. I'm like, she says goodbye to everyone. Right, she right. lingers. She, she just enjoys, like, she really enjoys it. It's not just politeness. It's like, actually. She likes to hang. Yeah. You know? I hate um, to hang. I hate and it. I'm just yeah. like, let's get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's actually a line in my book about like, I, I like to leave. Like if, if I'm at a group dinner, it's fine. But if the dessert menus come and people start talking about dessert and coffee and like, a, you know, after dinner drinks, I'm like, fuck you all. I got to get out of here. Yeah. Like, and I like dessert too, a lot, but it's like, that's enough. It's been an hour and a half. We need to go. There's 10 of us, too many people. I'm very rigid. About and then everybody's like, should we split the check? Oh God. And it's just like, oh God. And everyone's just, got their credit cards out. Yeah. And it's like, shoot me. Yeah. I was at a dinner for 16 people the other night. It was really fun actually. But then it got to the point where, and it was all women. Um, which 
somehow makes the goodbye thing different because it's super intense. Okay, okay. It's like, I love you. I love you too. <laughs> and we were all sober too. Let's not get carried away. Right, right. And, and the check splitting was just, I mean, if it hadn't been 16 people, I would have just been like, I will pay for it. You I know? do that. And like, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily generosity as much as it's just like anxious. Like, okay, yeah. like, I don't want to do this to the server. Right. I, I can, oh, I, I know. I often will do that. I mean, if it's 16 people, <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, I'll no be patient and I'll sit there and split it up. But like, yeah. if it's like, I don't know, six. Yeah, I'll totally I'll, just pay it. I'll and there's Venmo like, if people want to pay you back. Yeah. You're not even necessarily going to eat it. But, like, you get the next one. But like, right. let's not sit here for a half an hour doing math. Yeah, I'll chew my own arm off. It's, it's, it's pretty bad. So I've, I've had to, like, one thing I've noticed about getting sober is these things, like, that was always in me and I would just suppress it. So now it's just like, nope, I'm the asshole who's going to leave, you know? Right. And I'll be nice about it. And I will try to say goodbye to the host, but I, I won't try that hard. Yeah. You know, or yeah, but they, you know what? Nobody, like the thing about it too, is like, you think everyone's going to be like, where'd she go? Right. No one's thinking about right. you. Right. Right. They're like too drunk or they're focused on themselves or dealing with something else. Yeah. They're you're not just, keeping you just a head count. Uh, and okay. So you, I mean, I, I don't want to get too far out of chronology just mm-hmm. because I do think, um, it's worthwhile to get like a sense of like your story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but it, you went through your twenties, you mm-hmm. sort of kept drinking at the same pace. Yeah. I mean, I kind of dialed it back. Like I made a, a good attempt to be like a grown up, and, and I was never a big, like what I call a woo girl. I was never like one of the girls drinking and being like, woo. <laughs> <laughs> That's no. actually how I am. I used to live across the street from a hockey team and at the university of Michigan. And they were, that was like a very weird male form of drinking where they would fight each other. Like a whole team? Yeah. I, well, it was like, it couldn't have been the whole team, but it was like seven or eight guys in one of those huge converted houses that are uh-huh. just housing students. And my husband and I would wake up at like four in the morning and they'd be out in the street just brawling. Oh my God. And they were so drunk. And I was like, this is very weird. It was like a fight club. It makes but, me, uh, that makes me uh, feel it, uncomfortable. Oh, it was terrible. It was really terrible. I, I doubt they're probably all dead now. I'm like, feel like that when you told me that I just like all of a sudden, like, like a lot of my like hope for humanity just started to drain <laughs> out of my body, like through my feet into the floor. Just like thinking of like, yeah, bros. Oh in, yeah. In the yard. They were pretty, they were pretty bad. I was like, your friends, you live together. Why are you fighting? Why are you fighting with your fists now? I sound like their mom. Well, they're hockey players. It's like masculine ritual yeah. and uh proving yeah. ground kind of thing. Super drunk. And but, super drunk. And then you wake up in the morning and you're friends and you have no teeth. And, right. Right. Exactly. Right. So that was not me. So I was like a wine drinker. I was very sophisticated and blah, blah, blah. Um, and also professionally, like you had yeah. some success. You were, It wasn't like you were like destitute or like drinking yourself no. into the gutter. Like you were functioning as an adult. Yeah. Over-functioning. In a lot of the ways. And you had a lot of the signifiers of, mm-hmm. I have my shit together. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, because I'd always been like that since childhood. I was like the girl who did the extra credit. I was like, I was a Hillary Clinton, basically. Were you first child or what's your birth? First. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Of two. So, Uh um, you know, I was, I started reading young. I remember I have a very early memory of getting, um, in first grade, we would just get S's or N's on our worksheets for satisfactory or not satisfactory. And I once got an N and, um, because I had colored in all the pictures instead of just the ones with a certain sound. And, um, I was just weeping and I was still crying when my mother got to school to pick me up. Damn. And my teacher was just horrified. Like she had no idea that this was going to do this to me. You were wound that tight. Yeah. And I still remember it. I'm still kind of like, 
God, can I can I go just do that again? I'll do it better. This <laughs> I'll make time. it right this time. I'll make it right. I promise. <laughs> um, so I was always over functioning, and um, yeah, I worked in tech um, at Amazon for twelve years. So you, if you're not if you're over functioning there, you're barely functioning. I mean, it's such a high bar for performance that it's kind of like people say it's where overachievers go to feel bad about themselves. So I was, yeah, I was on work environments are weird yeah. because like communic to, to actually have a healthy human environment. I shouldn't put it all in work because it's like, I think it's just human groups mm-hmm. that are hierarchical mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to, to, and that could even be a family. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. but the human communication actually having like, like legit emotional health and well-being and an open flow of communication that's healthy is hard to do. Yeah. And I find time and, and you know, you're, then you're in a work environment where, you know, the, uh, the mission is to be great Mm -hmm. and that's not a bad mission. Like let's, let's build a great company or let's do something great in Mm -hmm. the work world. But then you bring in all these people who are achievers Mm -hmm. and then there's all this like social pressure to like be like a badass worker yeah, and to be tough, to be tough, to be competent and not complain, Mm -hmm. to never admit to weakness. Mm -hmm. I'm tired. I need a day off. Right. Then you get into competitive stressing. You know what I'm saying? Oh, there's so much competitive stress. Yeah. Yeah. And we one of the values at Amazon, and they have these leadership principles that they actually do live by. It's not just words on a wall, but one is to be vocally self-critical. And so, which I actually think is great because in a lot of companies, you never admit a mistake. And if you don't admit a mistake, you never really get better. Um, But it meant that people were constantly, they took it too far, like castigating themselves for these simple human that's what this podcast is about. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> Let me tell you the five ways I fucked up this morning. <laughs> and so I would have, and I managed you know, a bunch, of, a lot of people while I was there. And my best employees, like the people who were just brilliant and talented and hardworking, were the, the toughest on themselves. And there was nothing I could really say to get them to convince them they were doing a great job and were not about to be fired. Um, and I was the same way. I mean, I would try it with them because out of human caring. And, um, and cause I worried about them, like you're going to die by the time you're 40, right. but you, you just couldn't, you could tell, you could order them to work fewer hours, take them off a project and they would work on it like secretly. Is that American? Is that how it is in the world? Um, I think it, I think there's something specially American about it. I think it's also peculiar to certain corporate cultures. Um, I would go, I worked around the world. I was based in America, but I worked with um, international teams at Amazon and it definitely like it was different in France. Um, you know, people, there was people like take some time there. Yeah, they were a little more chill, but but there's so much we we would import talent from America into these. You know, it's a chance to go work in France for two years, and so there'd be enough Americans in every office to kind of infuse to toxify that. it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Make everybody else sad and crazy. Exactly, exactly. Well, it's like and the thing too, I think in France or in certain countries, you have time off that's sort of. Uh, enforced yeah, by it's government the mandated. government mandate. Mm-hmm. And I think when you have to self-enforce, mm-hmm. like there's all these companies where it's like, yeah, it's an open policy on vacation time. You, you know, you're an adult, right? We want you to take time, but then it's like, and by the way, here's 10 projects yeah, and nobody else is taking time. Yeah. And so then you just like wind up never taking like, time. Why would I do this? Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't want to be the one who's like, oh, I'm going to take three weeks this summer yeah. to chill out. <laughs> right. I would get so stressed when before vacation, like just, just, incredibly stressed. And then I would start dreading going back about five days before the end of my vacation. And, you know, in some ways, like I did that to myself, 
I could have said, Hey, here's, here are my limits. Um, no one ever said, no, you can't have limits, but nobody, but it was not the way it just wasn't the way. Yeah. So you just end up feeling weird and, and alcohol factors in, I mean, yeah. work stressed and also like the social aspects of work. Yep. And when you have a group of people, which is the case in most companies, most like there aren't very many companies that are, are worth a shit that don't have people in there who are high achieving, mm -hmm. conscientious, want to do well, uh, competitive, all mm -hmm. those things are going to be present pretty much anywhere you work. Yeah. Anywhere I'd want to work, honestly. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't want to work in a company where it's just kind of where we were all just taking care of ourselves all the time because yeah. that would be really boring. Yeah. You want to be challenged a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah. But then you have the stress that goes along with mm -hmm. that. And then you have like the natural social functions, dinners and lunches and mm -hmm. company retreats. And um, people are using alcohol both um, to help them be social, mm -hmm. to uh, numb themselves, and to kind of like uh, tone down that anxiety. Yeah. You know, and like all the stress, you know, it's like a, yeah. it's a very, very normal, common thing. Oh, totally. It's a fast route to bonding with others too. If you're on, you know, I taught um, at corporate retreats for a couple of years and you bring in people, we bring in people from all over the world. A lot of them had never met each other before. And, you know, you have a glass or two of wine and you're all like super, these were super hard charging people, they're executives, and they would have a glass or two of wine and they would be able to talk to each other and another two and they'd be hugging and, you know, and I remember I was sober at that point. I remember just being kind of jealous, like, oh yeah, I remember when it was that easy. Um, and I was feeling very shy about, um, I, generally it, much easier for me to talk to people now that I'm sober. Like I can pretty much walk up to anyone and talk to them. But in that situation, I was definitely like feeling the lack of being able to be part of the group and drinking and just showing, it's like you're showing your underbelly yeah. deliberately, right? which you would never do on the job unless you're, you know. And like, and like having the alcohol in your hand or yeah. like, you know, participating in that ritual like if you showed your underbelly absent that, everyone would be like, whoa. Right. Like, why is she doing that? <laughs> yeah, right. My dog lies like that sometimes. Why is she doing it? You even have like a bottle of rosé. What's right. going on? Yeah, you can't just be like, I'm feeling vulnerable right now. Yeah. Can I share with all of you? Right. And it was, it's 80% men at leadership levels there too. So it would have been even weirder. Um, but, but it was actually, it was, and it was a way I think for the men to, to kind of soften up a little bit, right. get a little drunk. Cause then they could be like, well, I've had some wine. So let me tell you that I have a heart and I have emotions. Well, yeah, there's all this pressure to be tough. Yeah. It's like the hockey team. Yeah. Yeah. Just without like the overt, you know, it's so depressing. It was weird too. Cause like, it's really some genuinely, I mean, some of the, the best people I've ever met, like people I hope I know the rest of my life and nice people. And you put all these nice people together who left to their own devices would be hard charging, but not insane, but you put them all together and they feed on each other, uh -huh. you know, each other's energy. So they would become, you'd get them alone and you're like, well, you're just absolutely lovely. And you have all these interests and hobbies and, um, but in the office, there's no time for that. And we were moving so fast. Um, I don't think I was bored a single day in 12 years. I bet. Yeah. How could you be? Right. And there were times when it was like, okay, a little boredom would be fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, downtime's, downtime's good. You need a little downtime. And I started to learn that. Um, and I, I would look for roles because you can kind of change, reinvent your career there um, at will. I would look for roles sometimes where I would have a little more because I was like, I'm going to be a better, and I was better at my job when I had some slack. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, the, you know, there, there's all these studies done that if you give people more time off, like they're actually more productive. Mm -hmm. 
And if people are, you know, working 51 weeks a year right? and then like having like a weird Christmas and then coming back, like you know, it's, you're going to, they're going to be there every day, but you're not going to get their best. No. And plus at some point you're just living your life from the office too. You know, you're trying to buy, do your Christmas shopping and uh, at Amazon. <laughs> yeah. at Amazon. <laughs> so, okay. So you're working, you're succeeding, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're drinking. Yeah. And, um, can you talk about how, like how much, how long were you battling with yourself about mm-hmm. whether or not this was a problem? Usually people go through a pretty long process. Yeah. It takes a while to kind of come to grips with what's going Yeah. I think it was probably a decade. Um, I do remember Caroline Knapp's book, Drinking a Love Story came out when I was like 26 or 27 and I read it and I thought, oh, <laughs> uh-oh, I really, really identified with it. And then I kind of just shoved it away. What did you identify with? Um, she would talk about things like watching the level of wine in the bottle, like if she was at dinner with a couple of other people to see if there would be enough, um, about being impatient when people drink too slowly because you don't want to be the one who's always refilling your glass. Um, things like like little things that I had never seen um, anyone talk about before that were very much like a kind of professional woman drinking sort of anxiety that's not about being in the gutter um i i I look at the level of the bottle but like i mean if you're at a dinner and you're trying to like make sure everybody has enough yeah but but it's not but you're worried about other people not just you yeah i'm all about other people yeah (laughs) you're so selfish (laughs) i was always like will there there be enough or or or, oh are we going to order another bottle or Uh should i get a glass or it's just always strategizing like it's really exhausting and stressful yeah, it's, like it's a weird... really stressful. So I think probably for a decade, I was like, do I have a problem? Do I not? And then I tried to moderate, which was hilarious. And I tried <laughs> that for years. And it's funny when I quit, so many people don't like it when you quit drinking. And they'll be like, well, why don't you just moderate? And it's like, well, do you think maybe I tried that for a long time? And I want to get to people adjusting to your sobriety. Yeah. But first, I want to get to like what hitting bottom and like finally making the decision. Yeah. And I like that. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll have you tell it, but I mm-hmm. like your story in particular because it reminded me that they don't all look the same. Yeah. And it's yeah. not always like waking up behind a dumpster and right. being like, I got to change. <laughs> right, right, right. It's like these things, there can be small moments of epiphany or yeah. small moments of big human change, you right. know? Uh, right. So talk about how you, you eventually arrived there. Yeah. So I, I've been trying to moderate for years. It sucked. Um, I always failed. And I got to the point where I was always worried about my drinking. Low level. 24 seven. It was always somewhere in my brain. How much am I going to drink tonight? Am I going to be okay? And it was usually night drinking. Yeah. Pretty much only night drinking. Like I didn't even like to drink during brunch, like day drinking always felt just strange to me. And then you just feel tired. Yeah. I don't understand day drinking at all. I didn't do it. Yeah. We just feel tired. And so it actually, in some ways I was able to lie to myself longer because like I didn't drink on planes. I didn't drink in airports. I didn't drink during the day. So I was like, well, I'm, I'm not doing those things. I'll, obviously I'm only drinking a bottle of wine minimum a night. I'm fine. Um, but I was so worried about it. I knew something was wrong. I knew I couldn't moderate. And so eventually I just got so tired of worrying. And I didn't even have a big moment where anything happened. I suddenly one day was like, you know, the one guaranteed way to stop worrying about drinking would be to stop drinking. Because if you're not doing it, you can't worry about it anymore. And I think probably, probably a few months after that, I woke up one morning, it was a Saturday, it was a beautiful day, woke up with a headache. um, And I just thought, I'm not going to drink tonight. And it was like the 
I can even feel it now, like like in my body, like how terrifying that was, the idea of going one night. But my husband was out of town, and I, I liked the idea that if I totally fell apart, I could do it by myself. Um, it's like an animal thing. You know, I'm going to go into the pain cave and, <laughs> the pain. or a marathon or thing. Right? That, that's what this garage is. It's yes. my pain cave. <laughs> the pain cave. <laughs> and, um, and so I... Didn't, I didn't tell anyone. I saw my best friend for lunch. I didn't mention it to her, and I just didn't do it. And I didn't die. <laughs> I did fall asleep. I had these fears that I would never sleep again. Um, which is taking the edge off at night. Yeah, all that work stress, all the whatever anxiety you got. Yeah, it's a have, way of being like the day's over and you can you can rest. Yeah. Um, and, but, and how much were you drinking? Like you weren't mm-hmm. day drinking, you weren't plain drinking, right? You weren't like mixing vodka into your coffee or anything Mm-mm. like that at work. No. It wasn't like that, but you would come home and pretty much every night go through a bottle of wine. Yeah, I probably would, um, you know, by eight o'clock, have a glass of wine and usually would end up having a whole bottle, sometimes more. And like, and you say you can't moderate, meaning like you can't stop it too. No. You, you always got to have another. Yeah, I would you know. do things like. I mean, just like I would pour a little more into the glass and be like, well, it's still the same. It's still the second glass. Uh-huh. I just poured a bunch of ounces into it. Well, this is the thing. Cause like, you know, wine culture is big in California mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. it's also become like, this has changed in America. Yeah. When we were kids, like it was parents drinking like beer and gin and tonic. Right. And like maybe like a vodka tonic or something. But then at some point, like foodie culture it's not all bad, but some of it's so fucking annoying. It is. And I always found it annoying, even as a, cause it's big in, in Washington too, wine culture. It's like wine o'clock and all oh, the stuff you write about with regard to rosé. Oh yeah. And uh, you know, these little like weird subcultures and like social habits that form around it. Like, you know, bugs the shit it's out of me. It's really irritating. And it's a way to signify like bouginess. Right. Like I'm a wine drinker. Right. Oh, I love wine. And like, everyone's like smelling their wine and it's like, you know what? Oh, yeah. There are like a hundred master sommeliers in the world and you're not one exactly. of them. Exactly. You're not even close, babe. <laughs> Who gives a shit? You know, right. like as long as it's not like spoiled. Right. You don't know the Does difference. Does it taste good to you? Right. Great. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, and the thing is, you know, why, like it is an art, like making people devote their lives to it. And, but I do think a lot of people are sort of using that fact to be like, I'm, I just like wine. I'm not a drinker. Right. It's an artisanal. still drinking. Well, I mean, like, and I get it. Like I do like this idea of there is a romance to these artisans Mm -hmm. who like grow the grapes in the soil and like Mm -hmm. they're dependent on the weather and like, you know, like the, yeah, it's kind of a miracle. It's kind of a miracle. And like each season is different. Each bottle captures Mm -hmm. something that, you know, like I, I can get, get into that. Um, and, and having a, a, a really good gl- glass of wine, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And like enjoying wine and like wanting to read mm-hmm. about like, you know, it's just, I think the, kind of like the wider application of it or something and the way it's kind of taken over, uh, can be annoying, but it's also fascinating because I think it goes back to this issue of consumption and, um, wanting to anesthetize ourselves mm-hmm. And then also wanting to feel a certain way about ourselves and our level of achievement. And uh, you know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, um, and for women, especially like I did some research, um, when I first started writing one of the Anjali, one of the chapters in this book, and I was looking at the flappers 
and the flappers actually were drinking and smoking as a feminist statement. And it was, and also because it was fun, but it was the idea that like, well, we're also allowed to have this kind of fun. We don't have to be blue stockings and be useful and be, you know, temperance people all the time. And so I, I think it's similar today. I think that a certain kind of woman um, is, is over drinking in that same way. Well, like I can, I can, destroy myself just like a man i can have fun <laughs> and it's bad like competition to and get it's into. like you absolutely can like i support your right to do it it doesn't mean it's a great idea um but it's it is a marker of like i'm powerful i'm strong i can you know women i can drink any man under the table well great good for you yeah. um you don't have the same enzymes that man does first of all so you're gonna um and this is another thing is i was convinced you know, there's science showing that women, it's not just because of our size, but because of our, our insides, our enzymes that we can't process like uh, alcohol, like men can. And I was like, oh, that's just a scare tactic. <laughs> you know, they're just trying to scare women out of having fun. And no, it's actually true. You know, um, it's actually science, but I convinced myself that was, that had to be wrong. So, and so I, um, yeah, I was absolutely one of those people who wanted to be, you know, I'm just living, doing the finer things. And, and there is art to it, even with liquor now, with gin. And you know, I'm working on a novel and there's a character who's a gin maker. And like, that's incredibly complicated. And you can do these beautiful things with it. Um, but we do fetishize that craft in a way that I think is partly about hiding the fact that we just want to get some ethanol into our bloodstreams. Right. Yeah. It's like if, if you, if you, present yourself as being like a, you know, having this rich appreciation for the terroir or whatever. Right, it's like right. suddenly like nobody will notice that you're pouring yourself like that fifth glass. Right. Cause you're not tasting it after that. Yeah. I mean, maybe a glass, maybe two and you don't, I mean, turnips have terroir also. Right. But you don't see people like having clubs for turnips. Yeah. They're pretty good. Well, yeah. And it's like the other thing too, is like, what's a glass? Mm-hmm. I mean, you alluded to this earlier, but it's like, you know, I think it's like what, two ounces or something. Five, I think it's five ounces. Or, okay. Yeah. It's not very much. It's not very much when you look at a glass. Yeah. So when they say like two glasses of wine a day for a man, one for a woman mm-hmm. in terms of like the healthy amount, 10 ounces, but most people who are doing a home pour myself mm-hmm. included, mm-hmm. it's probably cause I, you know what I always do is I just look at the bottle yeah. and I think like two glasses is like about half a bottle. Right. And I always stop there, mm-hmm. but then I'm like, did I just drink two glasses or did I actually drink three? Right, right. I don't know. You know, like the liquor, I'm not going to sit there and measure liquid ounces. Yeah. You know, yeah. it gets a little ridiculous, but nobody really knows, but, but yeah, five ounces is shockingly little. I mean, it's, especially if you have like the kind of larger wine glasses, most people don't have different glasses for all the different types of wine. Um, the all purpose ones, it looks like a, like it's a third full maybe. Yeah. Like it looks sad. Well, I'm at the point now where I'm like, I'm sort of down on alcohol. Mm-hmm just because of the way it's been marketed and sold to us. And it's really just not that great for you. And like you sort of behave like an asshole if you have too much of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm like into now that pot is legal in California, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like a very, like a micro dose essentially right, right, of right. cannabis. Um, as a, cause sometimes, you know, life comes at you fast. It does. And so for somebody who I think struggles with addiction, you do have to come up with some replacement behaviors, mm-hmm. which I always argue is a huge factor in quitting anything. Oh yeah. Like if you don't, like if you try to quit smoking, for example, which I've done, Mm -hmm. or you try to quit drinking, Mm -hmm. but you're not like, uh, also at the same time getting into exercise or getting into needlepoint or just something, something you have to have something. It's going to be hard. Yeah. And so, um, it has to be something you like also, right. That you're going to be able to sustain. Mm -hmm. But if you're, uh, 
if you're not struggling with addiction and you're living a you know a fairly healthy life, I think mm-hmm. that's what I'm doing. I still find myself some days, especially at the end of a week, like a like a Friday, mm-hmm. like I'll come home and I'll be like, God, I'm so spent. Like right. it's like coming at you, you know. And like sometimes, you know, like I can try to meditate, but it's like you know what. I just want to have like two milligrams of cannabis. Yeah. Like watch MSNBC. Right, right, fall asleep. Right. Just, yeah, just flip the switch. I mean, I'll, I'll go to a movie. Like movies are really good for that. Um, or a run, you know, any kind of exercise. I mean, I, I shop. Like, you know, you just upgrade your addictions. So you do some. Yeah, because I, yeah, I have friends um, who have, you know, become sober, but like different things take over. And it's like yeah. online shopping and. Sex is Makeup, a big thing. Sex is yep. a huge thing. Yep. But then there's like sex and love addiction. Yeah. Which and is then there's whole... like social media addiction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we all have some degree of addiction. Oh yeah, and you don't get rid of it. I mean, I and I know people who were at who were alcoholics who can smoke pot or something, and and it doesn't trigger them. I always just have really into it, um, so I'm not bothered. I'm not good at it. No, I'm just trying to find the sweet spot where like I'm not actually that fucking stoned. <gasps> Yeah. But then it gets stupid because I'm like, why am I even doing this? Like, I want to well, exactly. do it, but I don't want to, I don't want to feel it. Well, I went to, um, so it's, le- it's been legal in Washington for a while. And I went to a store recently because I wanted to get some um, muscle rub. And, um, and I felt really weird walking into a pot store because I was like, I should be behind the gym and someone's going to give me a baggie and I'm going to give them $40 right. and it'll be done. You know, yeah. and you walk in, there's like a yellow lab and the door being like, hello. And I was like, oh, hi. You know? So and, friendly. Yeah. So friendly. What this, is this? The CBD oil? Is that what yeah. It is? CBD oil. So and it this, doesn't have like the psychoactive property. Right. It's like a trace amount of THC. And I said to this nice young woman, like, so I want the, the muscle, but I don't want the kind that makes you high. And she was like, oh, I have the perfect thing. This will just make you super relaxed and you'll fall asleep, but you won't be high. And I was like, okay, I think we have different definitions of high. Yeah, <laughs> I want the kind with like no THC. And she was like, oh, got it. And I finally said, I'm an alcoholic. So I really don't want it. And she, and she was like, got it. And she gave me what I needed. Yeah. Um, and it's it actually works like for, for like soft, like muscle injuries and things. It's kind of amazing. And it doesn't make you high, but yeah, that's the thing about wine too, is when people are like, I just like the taste. It's kind of like, but is there no other? Do you love the taste? It's actually altering your brain. Like, right. and so if you right, yeah if you bullshit. want if you want to consume pot without getting stoned, it's like why? Yeah, um, like I just want to relax. Like I want to yeah. I want to take the edge off, or just like and sometimes too. Like I think there's something I like the idea of like um what, what was the verb that they used when I was reading about I was reading about psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of like defragging your hard drive or yeah. like wiping the slate clean almost, like, like right. changing up my headspace. Yeah, just kind of like, yeah, like retog- like toggling a switch or something. Yeah, yeah. That would be wonderful. I with, with the book coming out and like promotion being kind of bewildering and everything new, I said to my husband recently, like, I feel like I want someone to just flip me off and just turn me back on. Yeah. Just like I do to my laptop. Um, that's kind of how it is. That's a shortcut. And then there's always like, there's some cost, like you wake up a little foggier than yeah. you otherwise would have. Um, and I can't tolerate that. No. I, I fucking hate hangovers. Oh, yeah. I I'm, hate them. It's such a joke. I'm still, I've been sober for over five years, and I still sometimes I'm like, it is so amazing, like, not to have a hangover. Yeah. Um, I'll wake up occasionally if I'm dehydrated and I'll have a slight headache, and I'll, I'll have a moment of like, oh, my God, how much did I drink last night? And then right. I'm like, no, you were just a dummy who didn't drink any water. Yeah. You know? I and, love that. But, I mean, even as a moderate drinker, um, I noticed 
like if I keep it to like a couple days a week, mm-hmm. which is what I've been doing. Oh yeah. Um, that's awesome. But the nights that I don't, cause I, I get up very early. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I can't do that and be as functional as I'd like. If I even have one or two glasses, right. I feel them. Like if you're getting up, if you're running your system, like on that kind of, at that yeah. speed, like getting up at four in the morning and stuff, you can't even have, like if I have two glasses of wine at this age anyway, yeah. when that alarm goes off, it's not as easy to get up. It's probably still in your system in some ways. It does impact your sleep and um, like it puts you to sleep, but then it interrupts your sleep. And yeah, I've had other friends say that, that as they age, like even once they hit 40, they just can't, yeah. they feel it. I drank so much that I would kind of override that feeling. Cause I did have those signals in me that were like, this doesn't feel very good. And so my, my action instead of stopping was to be like, we'll have another one. <laughs> and then it would just override it. So, um, I thought I was, t- I thought I was tired for like a decade. And I think I actually seriously had a low grade hangover for, for most of those decade. days. I'd wake up tired and I would just think I didn't get enough sleep, but it was such a low grade hangover for the most part that I didn't recognize it as a hangover. Yeah. Yeah. So you get sober. Yeah, I get sober. I, I stopped, stopped drinking. I didn't go to AA um, for no particular. I didn't even remember it existed somehow. Therapy? Oh uh, yeah, lots of therapy. I'd been in therapy already. A lot of online support. Um, I went to this. There's a website called Tired of Thinking About Drinking. I had Googled the phrase and found this website. And she, this woman named Belle, runs a hundred day challenge, and you just sign up for it and just say, "I'm not going to drink for a hundred days," and um, which seemed impossible. And you email her every day just to be like, still sober. Every day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because this is something that's interesting uh, to me is in sobriety culture, whether, I mean, AA, I think is the prominent one, mm-hmm. but you, you, there's a reason why people go to meetings every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's accountability. It's something to do with your fucking time because you suddenly have a lot of it. And it's, I think the key to getting sober, like the thing that's been common for me that's the AA thing is, first of all, introspection, looking at yourself and also talking to other addicts because you can, I can sit down with anyone who's had an addiction issue. We could be totally, can be a cab driver or someone I have nothing in common with and we get each other at a fundamental level. And, um, but the meet, and I've been to some meetings, I've sort of dabbled, I'm like a dilettante in AA and yeah, it's kind of cool. You walk in and you're just like, huh? Yeah. I understand it, these people. It's honest. Anywhere in the world. Yeah. Anywhere. I've been to an AA. I went to an AA meeting uh, for book research years ago mm-hmm. in West Hollywood and I was blown away. Oh like, yeah. Just, it's powerful. It is. And there's just, there aren't that many spaces, you know, human gatherings where people are that honest with one another. Yeah. And they're used to, a lot of them are used to being that honest. So they just open right up and it's, it's kind of incredible. I went to one, uh, it was in the early days of the me too movement and it made me feel better about men. Um, just because I was in this, like, like let's just put them all in a fire heap and like it <laughs> sort of mood that yeah. I've been toggling in and out of right. the Trump era. Yeah. And, and I was like, oh, these guys are really, I'm sure that they, they've got their own stuff like we all do. But it was like this really intimate, vulnerable space. And I was like, oh, look, humans. Right. <laughs> and it just made me feel so good. And I didn't need that meeting to keep me sober. But I was just like, oh, these, these people are just, well, they're also just people. You realize like if you go to meetings and there's people who've been sober for 20 years, they're not struggling day to day with whether to drink. They're just having problems like normal human problems. Yeah. But I think that if you don't have some sort of accountability system Mm -hmm. or ritual or community, whether it's virtual or in person or therapeutic, if you you don't, if you don't have some sort of 
a regular reminder, you lose sight. Yeah. And I think you run the risk of possibly slipping. Well, you can forget how bad it was. And I have friends who still go to AA after 30 years, primarily because they want to remember. And they want to see people who are brand new to sobriety and be like, oh, yeah, I do not want to be there again. Isn't it amazing that you can forget? Yeah. Yeah. Especially for, I mean, because some people's stories are much more cinematic than yours. Right. You know, where and it's they like, still forget. I woke up in a snowbank and yeah, you I know, got arrested. I, I got arrested. I don't even remember, you mm-hmm. know, like multiple, there, there are some horrific stories oh, yeah. out there. Even those people could forget. Mm-hmm. Like the, the human capacity for forgetting is uh, formidable. Yeah. It's really scary. I, I am the night Trump was elected. I just remember it was really my big moment of truth. I'd been sober for over three years and you're not the first writer to tell me that sober writer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like the, the night of the 2016 election. Yeah. Like, uh, like unsolicited people have told me that was a night of great, like, uh, tenuousness or like, yeah. if I was going to slip, it was going to happen then. Of course. Like it's an, like, I thought about that even beforehand. Cause I was like, it's a, I, and I thought the outcome was going to be very different, but I still was like, Oh, I'm going to be so nervous. And it was actually a great night for me in some ways, because I had this moment of realizing, well, you could drink, but it's not actually going to change reality. He will still be president and you will wake up and you will have relapsed. And it was the harshest moment of, I don't think I really realized that wine could not alter reality Mm. until that night. And I was like, fuck, we're so fucked. And, um, but I just sat on my kitchen floor, did not drink. And um, woke up the next day, felt horrible. On your floor? Yeah. Oh, like yeah. I was like, yeah. I was like, just sit down. My dogs are next to me. Yeah. And I didn't have, there was no booze in the house. Like, I, I was never actually in jeopardy. I wasn't going to go out and do it. Yeah. But I was like, I wanted anything to change. Because I also, my, my mind was panicking and I was imagining all these catastrophes, you know, some of all which, of which come have come to me. <laughs> yeah. I was saying to someone the other day, I was like, it actually turned out to be as bad as we yeah. as we thought and worse. In I some hate ways. to be right, but I sort of like, there's yeah. nothing that's happened where I'm like, I can't believe it. Right. I, I thought for a while, oh, it'll probably just, tr- he's a piece of figurehead and it'll be just, you know, a standard Republican administration will suck, but, but no, he's actually crazy. But, but it was really a scary moment of realizing that even if I drank, nothing would change. And I hear people say now like, oh, I, I'm just, I'm going to quit once Trump is out of office or I, I start drinking a lot more. When I Trump- say that about social media. Yeah. I'm going to quit once this shit's over. Once with. he's gone. I'm yeah. using it right now because I need to keep up with the well, net. Yeah. But once it's over, I'm going to just like check just out. The cord. Yeah. There is some reason for that. Um, with drinking, I always say to people like, don't let him be the one that makes that decision for you. Hmm. Like if you're drinking because of Trump, and you're drinking to a level that you're worried about it. Like you're just giving him your power. Yeah, he's already taken so much. Don't let him take yeah. that. Yeah. Like, like drink if you want to drink, but don't, don't do it because of him. Cause there's always going to be some, like what if Peter Thiel, the, you know, the kinder, gentler, more polished Trump comes along. Like that's going to be a pretty scene either. Yeah. You're just going to drink the rest of your life. I guess you could, but huh. well, I wouldn't what, recommend it. You know, it's like this, uh, like the fundamental issue I think, or at least like one way that I conceive of it is just that like the way through is through mm-hmm. when it comes to human pain. Yeah. Yeah. And for some reason that's really hard. Well, it's hard to do. It's terrible. And it's hard to admit. Yeah. Everybody, yeah. we all have these strategies for trying to run away from our pain, mm-hmm. um, our anxiety, our sadness, our fear, whatever it is. If you drink, if you eat an edible CBD, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is, social media, mm-hmm. reality TV, 
yeah. shopping, yep. food, sex. Yep. Like these are... The, they the, all work temporarily. Temporarily. Yeah. But ultimately, and this is what therapy is, mm-hmm. you're going through it. Right. With a guide. It's like a little microcosm, like a diorama of your life or something. And yeah, and you have somebody there to kind of like prompt you and like help you through. Yeah. Yoga is kind of good for that too, or, or running. Like I feel like anything you do, the way you do things like on a yoga mat or running, or it's kind of the way you do everything. Like my impatience comes out when I'm running, you know, or my like, why isn't this easier? <laughs> I'm angry about that. Um, well, because it's not, it's really fucking hard. Um, well, you and you see yourself in, um, I guess those are both solitary activities. You're sort of trapped mm-hmm. inside of yoga, especially because, um, you know, you've got the meditation aspect, but you've also, you're putting yourself and your body into these like uncomfortable postures. Yeah. And, you're kind of doing it on purpose and, I, and watching like the chatter in your head. <laughs> right. Right. That, it, which is amazing to me because I started to realize that I would immediately go into the most extreme version of a pose that I could. And then I'd be really uncomfortable. And it was like, oh, interesting. That's exactly what I do at work and, you know, in any aspect of my life. And and so I still do that, but now I know I'm doing it. You get, like, <laughs> you baby get, com- steps. You get competitive at yoga. Yeah. You're yeah. like, got to be amazing at this. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to suck at yoga. Mm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that that pain will do anything to avoid it. You actually can't. And there's no like happy answer. I mean, I, um, People are like, your book is inspiring. And I'm like, really? Because I don't think so. I stopped doing one thing, you know, and I'm a much, I'm an infinitely happier person now. But that's inspiring. Yeah. And it's not easy to stop. No, no, it was very, very, it was, it, you know what? It was hard for me to stop, but I started feeling better really fast. I think I knew within two weeks that what I had suspected for a whole decade had been correct, that I needed to quit drinking. And so it was a lot easier for me than some people. It's still uncomfortable. You have to go through like the first Christmas and visit home. And well, but let's talk about that. Yeah, I've been meaning to get to that, but I wanted to kind of hear the the story first. But the navigating the social aspects of being a newly sober person, mm-hmm. or just being a sober person, period. Mm-hmm. Or like sometimes I run into this. We're like, I just don't feel like drinking. Yeah. It's like I go out some nights and I'm with my buddies or you're with like, and it's like, would you like some wine? Mm-hmm. No, I'm good. Just the water. And then everyone's like, well, why aren't you, why aren't you drinking? Even I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> or like, like I'll have a nice tea or you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like, but you feel a social pressure. And then if you don't, then everyone like, it kind of brings the room down and everyone, like, then one other person will be like, you know what? I'm not going to either. And then other people are like feeling guilty for the fact that they did. And, <laughs> everyone's watching them. And I'm like, you know what? Let me just do my thing. I don't give a fuck. Like take right. care of yourself. Like I don't want to hear, you know, I'm not policing anybody. I just don't want to have anything to drink. <laughs> it's so weird. It's yeah. so, so weird. I, I was actually out to lunch with my publishing team in New York last week. And I was so relieved when someone ordered a glass of wine because like, I just want people to do their thing. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, if you're with a sober person, they don't want you. I mean, I guess maybe some do, but like most of my friends who are like officially sober, right. They don't want you to not have a drink because they're at the table. Then it just makes everybody feel weird. It's weird. And there's some people I think if they're really newly sober who maybe can't handle that or something, but you know, most of us, if you're going to live in the world, like there's a lot of booze in the world and you might not hang out in bars, but, um, but I'm, I'm actually fine going to a bar except for the fact that people are annoying when they're drunk. But, um, Yeah. yeah, it's so strange. I think like if I were allergic to shellfish, and I went to a restaurant with friends and said, no, I'm just having a salad or something. Nobody would be like, oh, let's just have one shrimp. Um, maybe you won't go into anaphylactic shock. They would never do that. Um, but with booze, it makes people really uncomfortable. I, well, this is what I think. I think that 
deep down, a lot of us feel, I mean, I've, mm-hmm. I, I'm the, the poster child for this where I'm thinking like, you know, if you're self-aware yeah, and if you're interested in this issue of consumption mm-hmm. and if you're interested in your feelings mm-hmm. and like the, you, you're cognizant of your pain or whatever and how you're dealing with it. I think a lot of us feel a sense of maybe I should tone it down or maybe this isn't the best way. It's amb- yeah, like ambivalent drinking. Yeah, yeah. and then, but ambivalent consumption across the board. Like maybe I shouldn't be staring at my phone. Right. Maybe right. I shouldn't be on Amazon.com, like looking mm-hmm. at, you know, whatever. Stuff I don't need that I can get delivered in an hour. It just feels it's hard not to look at the the state of things. Like for example, climate. Mm-hmm. That's to me. That's like the the most hardcore manifestation of yeah. our consumption problem. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're killing ourselves. We're yeah. destroying our own environment, and so. I think it's not an exaggeration to say that uh, like a radical rethinking is in order. Mm-hmm. Well, because it's also, I think people feel powerless. Like when I think about climate change, I can almost, and you know, in Seattle this summer, we were breathing smoke for a couple of weeks and which you guys do down here. And, and I was like, oh, this feels really real. Um, like, I don't know if those fires were directly caused by climate change, but you know, they were not uncaused by them. And then you feel powerless. I was like, well, what can I do right now? There's nothing I can do. Well, there is though. I think changing, uh, change like, one habit, change one habit, yeah. but like the way that you consume, Yeah. like the way that we consume food, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, like you beef can, contributes to yeah. like, climate meat, change like and- if you're participating in industrial meat production, um, that has a huge impact mm-hmm. on the clear cutting of forests and water, uh, like, you know, water pollution because mm-hmm. of the, the runoff and the, uh, pesticides and chemicals that go into the feeding the livestock. And, yeah. You know, it's like all tied together. One th- like even, even cut down one time a week. I mean, that's public transportation, th- yeah. biking, yeah. like, you know, recycling, you know, like you mm-hmm. do all those kinds of things. Start and I think, composting or, yeah, you know, you can start to have, like if we, if we all did that, right. Then, but there is the power of one. Yeah. And I think people, and I tend to think of these grand actions, um, like, I need to go live on a mountaintop and not consume anything. I mean, this is again, like, this is like great alcoholic thinking. Like you're either (laughs) like, I'm either driving like a Hummer or I'm yeah. And, um, and I think people, so you get this feeling of like, I'm panicked. I don't know what to do. And it's like, I just want to make something take the edge off. And of course, I mean, people are like, don't, don't you miss having something to take the edge off? Absolutely. You know? But it just can't be alcohol for me anymore. Um, you know, it's running or shopping. Or, and did your, I mean, most of your friendships survived the transition? They did. Your family was, relationships, your husband. I know, like, that you yeah. write about him in the book. And Yeah. He actually ended up quitting, too. He quit about six months later. He was super supportive. And um, he, yeah, he just decided to quit. He'll be five years in about a month. Was his drinking similar to you? Yeah, if not worse. Um, but we didn't know it. Cause we, we got along great. We always had. And so we thought we were fine. I mean, we look back and we're like, Oh, that's adorable. Yeah. <laughs> Incredibly codependent <laughs> human beings. Right. Um, and we're both just like so much happier now, but we're lucky that our relationship it's, it's even better now because a lot of people, either one person doesn't get sober and the other person can't deal with it yeah. or they get each get sober and then realize they're moving in totally different directions. So I think some marriages don't survive. Um, yeah, I was a little older. I think I was 43 when I quit drinking. So by that point, most of my friends, like I thought everybody was drinking just like I was, but that was not really true. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of them were, but I looked around and I was like, okay, these are more rational people. So it, I talk to people in their twenties who are getting sober. That's tough. 
you know, or, or college students where people really are going out and partying like maniacs. Um, so I was able, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't lose any friendships that were important to me. I can tell you that. But you'd have to go like work functions. Yeah. And everyone's doing like, you know, the oh wine God, and the wine you have to be like, um, cause the thing is, is like at some point the conversation inevitably comes up, I would imagine mm-hmm. like, Oh, you're having a club soda. Right. And maybe people, maybe people don't say anything cause they're not going to be like, are you sober? Right. Right. But right. eventually like it probably came up. Right. But yeah. Especially because I was known for drinking, uh-huh. um, for being like part of the drinking crowd. Um, and I would just say something like, Oh, you know, yeah, I just, I just decided to, to take a break or something. And they would usually know enough to just be like, Oh, Okay, cool. And often people just don't care as much as you think they will. Like if it's not someone who knows you well, they're just like, okay. I think too, people, in my experience, when somebody gets sober, and if if you actually say it, like I, you know, I had to stop. Yeah. People tend to be like, that's awesome. Yeah. And then sometimes lot. you'll get like, you know, I should probably do that. Too. <laughs> I had a ton of that. They would be like, that's fantastic, which is great. It's, it's even if it's just a polite, nice, supportive thing to say, like, it's just, it's just nice. Like people would say, it's, people would say congratulations. And that made me really happy um, because it was like an achievement. It was like I'd achieved something. You got a, you got an, an S. Yeah. yeah I, got, I got the S, <laughs> S plus even. And, um, and then often they'd be like, I should think about it. Or they'd say, you know, my mother um, has been sober for 10 years, but she drank a lot when I was growing up. Like everybody's got a story. Sure. And, um, and that was, that was kind of cool. I also realized, so it was, you know, Amazon's a tech company. There's lots and lots of people, especially in the tech end who came um, to Seattle from India. And a lot of people who grew up in India don't drink, you know, they're Muslim, they're Hindu. Um, so I started, but they microdose, which is huge. Do they? <laughs> they might be microdosing. <laughs> Probably are now trying to keep up with Bezos. Exactly. Right. Right. He's ripped. <laughs> He's juicing for sure. It's so weird. Just, he wasn't like that when I first no. got to Amazon. He looked kind of just regular. He was like a geek. Yeah. Now he's like geek to freak. You yeah. Know? He'd been kind of heavy in the early, like way early, like not really, but you know, like a softer guy. And then when I got there, he was just skinny. And now, like I saw that photo, <laughs> I, I would see him maybe five or six times a year. So not a lot, but it's I was like, like biohacking like, ripped. It's but, crazy. But see, biohacking to me feels like that's the void trying to fill that void. Mm-hmm. And it also that hyper competitive office culture and yeah. like that bro culture. All of a sudden I'm seeing the hockey team fighting in the yard. Oh, totally. And it's yeah. like, I'm going to biohack every, I'm going to, you know, cryotherapy. I'm going to freeze my body. I'm going to, you know, I'm trying to think of all the different things that these, this, there's a certain bro culture that's like deep into it. Tim, but it's a Tim Ferriss kind of thing. Sure. And yeah. I'm going to get a competitive edge. And I'm going to make more money and I'm going to work less hours mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. I'm going to need less sleep. Right. You're I'm still going to die. It's like, dude, <laughs> but it's like, at some point I'm just like, shut the fuck yeah. up and live your life. Did you see this thing that came out about Mark Wahlberg this week? It's his workout routine. No. It is insane. It's on Instagram. I think he gets up at two in the morning by three and then he prays for like half an hour so like oh mark Wahlberg God. at 2 30 in the morning just think about this next time you're awake he's out there praying which is i mean good for him that's fine well i mean the dalai lama gets up at 3 45 i think people but he's have, the dalai lama he's the yeah <laughs> but like this this brings up such like this is the question for me like how do you live a good life mm-hmm. and by good life i mean like a wise life right how do you actually get to a place of peace and equanimity or equanimity Am I saying that right? Equanimity. equanimity yeah. yeah. And yeah. happiness. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like uh, what's the path? 
Yeah. I mean, is it getting up at two and like going into the gym? Right. Is it, uh, you know, maybe for some people, maybe I, I feel like it's like when I got sober and I think it's like this for a lot of people, it's actually a route to uncovering who you really are and what you really want. And you can't hate yourself into it. Um, you have to actually learn to be nice to yourself or you're just not going to make it. And so for me, I think my life got a lot better because I had to actually learn to be nice to myself for the first time in my life. And that sometimes it means silly things like, you know, buying myself a new pair of shoes that I don't really need. Um, that's relatively less harmless than drinking. (laughs) And sometimes it's actually things like, yeah, I don't want to go to that party. So I'm not going to. Um, like giving myself time and space, making sure I get enough sleep. Like it forced Not beating me. yourself up for like past mistakes. Yeah. I mean, I really try not to. Or if there's, you know, there's this thing in, in AA where you make amends, where you actually think, are there places where I can make amends where it's not just about me and it's not going to hurt the other person more, where you can actually go and say, hey, that, I did this thing. That's powerful to me. I know. It's I love amends. It's terrifying, but it's like super powerful. Yeah. I'm going to do the steps at some point, and I And that's kind of the reason. Like the moral inventory sounds really fun, um, especially the sexual inventory. I love that idea. I'm like, that would be a great essay. Right. <laughs> I was going to say, you did your moral inventory. It's sitting here in this Yeah, book. exactly. Because I rake myself over the coals plenty. But then to actually make amends, it's like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do that. It's not because I don't think I owe anyone an apology. It's because I don't you know, necessarily want to make it. But I've, I've, done, I've done kind of my, my version of that. Well, I have a friend. And I don't think this friend would mind, especially since I'm not going to name this friend. Uh-huh. I won't even genderize this friend. <laughs> I have a friend who in high school got fucked up with some friends and wound up vandalizing some house, mm. like some suburb, you know, mm-hmm. and six, seven years later got sober. And as part of the amends process, went to this house, yeah. rang the doorbell and was like, that was me. Wow. I'm sorry. What do I owe you? Wow. And they were like $15,000 or something like that. Yeah. And he was, or they weren't just like, Hey, yeah. thanks for telling us. Right. <laughs> my friend was like, Oh shit. Okay. Can, that's, we, can we do this in installments? <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's the problem is you have to be prepared for the fact that there's might be actual consequences mm-hmm. or that people are just like, fuck you, get out of here. Yeah. It's well, not that, always a movie, like a Will Smith movie where they're like, this is powerful. Well, it's like it's weird when it's when it comes to amends and apologies because you know sometimes you're you're saying uh, saying you're sorry and you just really want that absolution. Mm-hmm. You want the person to say that it's okay mm-hmm. or thank you for apologizing. We're going to put this behind us and you can you know yeah you want that emotional release, but that can't yeah, be can. what it's about. No, it's about you saying you're sorry and letting them have space to do it and feel however you know. Exactly, you do what you can, and then you really can't control the outcome. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I heard this phrase the other day about from a sober guy, a sober chef, about investing in the loss. I'd never heard this phrase, but it was like you you let go of the outcome and you just invest in whatever is going to happen, even if you end up losing something. Yeah. And I thought that sounds beautiful. I don't really want to do it. I want, I want my own way, but well, and I think that you can't, it makes sense to me that you can't fully like get emotionally and psychologically healthy in the absence of some kind of process like that, particularly mm-hmm. if you went way off the rails right? and like, you know, destroyed your family life or oh, yeah. hurt, really your hurt children's people. lives. Or, yeah. Yeah. I was fortunate in that, you know, I didn't have those kinds of stories, although I'm sure I, I did subtle damage to people. Um, but, but yeah, if you've really, really hurt people or, you know, vandalized, I mean, someone had to spend $15,000 on their house. Like that's, 
that's a big deal, and I'm sure emotionally it hurt them and it made them feel violated. Because well, it was like, who 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 did this? Yeah, it's scary. It was scary. It was like, did somebody hate us? Like, is right. there, are is something there... about our identity? Is it? Like, yeah. Like they didn't know it was just some stupid kid. Right. Um, and then like lived with that for six years. Right. So, right. <clears throat> it was worth it for them to hear, and probably brought cl- brought closure all the way around. Right. They and, were like, it's just some idiot, but we still, you know would like real immense. But can you imagine, I mean, I, I'm trying to think if something like that happened to me and then somebody came, I think my heart would be touched. I'd be like, oh, this person mm-hmm. is a good person. Right. You know, I would have forgiveness. I'd probably want my money back too. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that someone would actually come to you. I, I, I would be impressed. I yeah. think they didn't have to do this. No. This was probably really hard and scary. They actually came in person. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that's pretty ballsy. Hard to outsource that. No. Task rabbit. I mean, yes, yes, very hard. Would you mind going to this house as my representative? Right, right. <laughs> Here's a little this... thing on a popsicle stick you can hold up in front of your face. <laughs> oh, man. Do so, you think he was hoping that it was like different people who lived there? I mean, who knows? But I think like ultimately it's probably a good thing because yeah. otherwise there would be no, you know, there would be no, if they had moved away or something, there would be, be hard to get that closure. Right. And to have made that apology. Right. But, yeah. Your friend knows that they have done that now. You know, and it's like, I think we've all done subtle damage. Mm-hmm. We've all done damage to other people. Oh, yeah. Sober or not. I mean, and it's so hard to know how much do you owe in terms of amends? Mm-hmm. Like, how much guilt, like, how much guilt does a person carry before things start to get unhealthy? Right. And when do you actually owe somebody like that kind of grand action? Where like you go, a formal. Like a formal mm-hmm. thing versus... Just understanding that you made a mistake, that you did some subtle damage, or you 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 know you hurt somebody somehow, mm-hmm. and resolving to be better. Right. And is that enough? Do you right. see what I'm saying? Like yeah. the, the balance between those two things, I never know. Like I think in my head, I'm like, I really wish I could just go back and every single person that you know I ever did anything to, if I could just get a hold of them, we could Skype it out. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, yeah, because I've had people apologize to me for things that like I have no memory of, and, just, and I'm totally fine with that person, and and it's clearly serious to them. And I'm like, it's. I almost feel bad being like I don't remember this thing that's clearly really important to you. Yeah. Um, but it's fine. But I always think of so in Magnolia, the movie. There's this scene where Jason Robards is dying. And people are always talking about, like, don't have regrets, don't have shame. And he's like, no, use your regret. It's this really powerful moment. And it's like, take your regrets and make them whip you into shape in some ways. And so I think it's a really fine line. I think about that a lot, actually, because I'm, like, trying to be a decent person. And I don't I think about it all the time. Yeah. But I think that's true. Like, I think you have to use that stuff. And you have to, like, you have to be aware of the mistakes that you've made. Otherwise, how are you going to, A, or how are you going to get better? How are you right. going to not make those same mistakes? And Yeah. Because they try, even if it's a selfish thing, like hurting people drags you down too. Unless you're, you know, a sociopath, um, which most people are not, thank God. Um, it's, you know, you can write off a couple, like in bad circumstances, but if you're constantly treating people badly, I think it just makes you, like in yoga, the yamas and niyamas, they're not to make you some sort of pure being. They're to make you happier. Wait, what's the yamas and the yamas? Um, they're like the things you should do and should not do. So there's like five of each. I used to be able to rattle them off. But it's right. like being truthful, um, not stealing. Don't gossip. Yeah. Like yeah. stuff like that. Uh, being like um, clean. Um, and and it seems like like not, not stealing. It's not just because stealing is wrong. It's because like if you're stealing, 
you're probably not going to be, unless you're, you're just amoral, you're not going to be happy. Right. So it's, it's really for you and, and you're and living by your own values. I mean, I think that's what it comes down to is you have to figure out what's important to you, whatever that is, as long as it's not like arson or something, you know, arson is hugely important to me. <laughs> right. Then maybe you shouldn't live by your values. But so that's what my therapist helped me figure out. Like, when are you living by your values? And I think you could feel it. Like a lot of us are really disconnected from our bodies, mm. but I think that you can learn to like feel it in your body. That's how I know if I need to like actually apologize to someone. I think I can sense it. There's like a physical manifestation. I think so. That's hard to feel or I'll feel, or if I'm around them frequently, I can sort of feel this vibe and um, usually I'm not wrong. Yeah. And then, you know, you apologize and, and the apology is never as hard as you think it's going to be. Cause the worst thing that happens is they act ungracious about it. Or they're just like, what are you talking about? Right, we right. Were, like, we were in high school. No yeah, one, exactly. Like, no one we gave were a seven. Shit. Like, <laughs> That's me. I'm still hanging on to like right. the shit I did when I was like seven, you know, but, 16 or 14. Or it's like, dude. But are you still mad about stuff people did to you when you no, were seven? No, no. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, dude, it's okay. Like, you know, we're all human. There's a girl who bullied me when I was 12 and we're Facebook friends now. And I still kind of hate her. I mean, you know, like there is like, a if you, you can get back inside that pain a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm capable, but like, I think bigger picture, like if that same person was like, I was just diagnosed with a horrible illness, you'd be right. like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. You okay. Right. Can and I, I would mean it. Yeah. yeah. And you would mean it. So it's yeah. like, you know, it's very easy to get back inside, but I think when it comes to big picture stuff, like it's, you know, it, it falls away. Right. Right. But the fact that you are still holding yourself accountable for stuff you did when you were a kid that, you know, people probably, you were a different person. I know. And it's like, I think I have this. You know, it's a good thing. It's like, again, it's a fine line between mm -hmm. uh, self-awareness and holding yourself to high standards, mm -hmm. which isn't a bad thing. No, it's like good. High standards of behavior, wanting to actually work at my spiritual life, mm -hmm. uh, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. Like, think about the big stuff. Mm -hmm. Why are we here? What's the best way to live? Right. How should I be consuming? How should I treat people? Mm-hmm. How should I treat myself? Mm -hmm. What should I do with my uh, work life? And your time. And my time. Mm -hmm. Like, how should I earn my living? And what are the consequences of it? Yeah. You know, like all these things. Yeah. And it's like, uh, it's a lot to consider. And yeah. I think the fine line is like between, you know, engaging with that stuff um, honestly and consistently and then like oh, over obsessing about it or hanging right. on That's too tight dangerous or part, beating yourself up. And yeah. If you can't take any action, like if you get so wrapped around the axle that you can't do anything, then uh -huh. that's when, and, and I think we can all get to that. If anyone who's thinking honestly about these things get to the point where it's like, I literally can't make a non harmful action in this world. Um, you can get kind of frozen. That's but, why I like meditation. Yeah. Cause it's like, sit down, shut the fuck up. Yeah. That's it. That's it. It's I not keep, easy, but it's like, I keep trying to get better at it. It's so, I, I've done yoga for so long. Like I'm the type of person who, who should, and I do like it every time I do it. I'm like, oh, that was nice. I'm glad I meditated, but I just never, I just don't, I just never want to do it. So it's I don't stopping. Yeah. I need to bribe myself or something. I need to actually have like but a chore yoga Yoga's meditation. is just, yeah, you're, you're Cause I do you know, I, meditation sometimes it is yeah. smoking. It just involves yeah. like 5,000. I always joke. It's the same thing as meditation. People have like a smoke break. Yeah. They're going outside to just like breathe for a second. Yeah. But they're breathing poison. <laughs> I had a friend who, or a friend of a friend who said when she quit smoking, the hardest thing was she would smoke when she was arguing like with her teenage son. And it was a chance to pause because she would like inhale 
smoke. And, <laughs> and suddenly that was gone. Yeah. And that was the hardest thing is she had to just engage with him like a tennis match. And um, I thought, wow, that's really, I mean, I only smoked for like a year, you know, in my late teens. It's the worst. I was so gross. I was so amazing. Gross. Like I quit. I just, I was like, I'm done. Huh. It was really easy. So you wouldn't think I would have ended up being an addict in other ways. Interesting. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause like a lot of times people who, um, give up alcohol or drugs or whatever, like there'll be nicotine. Oh yeah. Like as a replacement right away. In fact, I'll hear from people sometimes who are like, so today I quit drinking, smoking, sugar, and um, carbs, and also I start training for a marathon. And I'm like, okay, Missy, you need to go bring back at least two of those things right now. Okay, sugar and carbs. I want to talk about this. Yeah. Like, I get it. Like, white bread, like, in mass, mm -hmm. you know, and like, like, binge eating candy. Like, okay. Right. But can we calm down on, like, not eating any carbohydrates yeah. and, like, never yeah. having a sweet? Right, right. Like, like live like your sugar life. Sugar is poison. I have a friend who's trying to, like, improve. She's sober and trying to improve her relationship with food. And she was like, I won't call sugar a poison anymore. She said, it, it doesn't have nutritional value. That's different from being a poison. It's just such a sick, that all or nothing thinking is killing us. I mean, yeah. And it's like, I don't know. I just feel like... Uh, Having a little chocolate. No, it's like I have chocolate almost every day. I, d I do have chocolate yeah. every day. Yeah, it's really good. Like not a ton. Right, right. The yeah. chocolate. And mine's not always, get, you know, the darkest chocolate either. Like it's not, oh, I'm getting the antioxidants. No, I like the way it tastes. Oh, wait, you don't, you don't eat dark chocolate? I do, but I eat milk chocolate too. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> That's fucked up. I love milk chocolate. You're going off the rails. It's <laughs> It is, it is sweeter. Well, people, so the thing, you know, when people get sober, they tend to like dive into a vat of ice cream. Uh, um, I cer I certainly did. And then you're like, why am I not losing weight? That's that sugar? so strange. Because there is it's a sugar. sugar, there's a sugar thing happening with alcohol. Yeah. And, and you don't necessarily realize it. And then, so, and also I just wanted to like treat myself because I was the kind of person who wouldn't eat. I would like to use my calories on alcohol. Oh. So I was like, well, there's a lot of incredible ice cream in the world. Like it's innovative <laughs> ice cream, basic ice cream. It's cutting edge. Yeah. Yeah. It's very good. But yeah, sugar is definitely a thing. So when people quit drinking and sugar on the same day, I mean, some people have to do it that way and that that works. It's like, it's like detoxing from heroin. It sucks. And then you're uh, fine. But, but normally I'm like, okay, go. It's the only time I'll tell someone like, go get a fucking cigarette. Do not quit drinking and smoking on the same day Yeah, because you're going to need something. You can't hate yourself or punish yourself into getting sober. That's a good point. Uh, or staying or staying sober. You'll be white knuckling it. You have to actually like yourself enough to do it and like, and like yourself enough to know that you're doing something hard that doesn't feel fun right away. But that it's going to be like loving yourself sometimes means doing something that doesn't feel pleasant. Do you uh, have, or did you, as an outgrowth of getting sober, develop like a richer, uh, like spiritual life the way that a lot, cause in AA, yeah. it's not like you got to be Christian, but right. there is the God thing or the, there, mm -hmm. whatever, the, something bigger than the myself. Higher power. The higher yeah. power. That's right. It's funny cause Seattle is such a secular city and people just kind of rattle through that. Like, like in the Pledge of Allegiance, how you're like, one nation under God. And I can just say that stuff and it doesn't mean anything to me. Um, yeah, I did. Like, I'm agnostic. I'm not a hardcore atheist. So, like, lately I've been drifting in that direction. Um, but yeah, I think anytime you get to know yourself better and to, like actually have to think about your place in the world and how you live your life, it's hard not to become more spiritual and, and creativity also. I mean, I think that the fact that I'm actually writing now after I, you know, I took 12 years off. Um, and came back to it. Like you, 
you're tapping into something bigger for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and then ritual too. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really grateful for that. I mean, that's been the best thing. And the yoga. Yeah. Yeah. And the how, yoga. How much are you doing of that? Not much anymore. Cause I run a lot. I oh. did yoga very competitively and you can actually do competitive <laughs> yoga. It's a thing. Yeah. No, um, I remember like watching some documentary on Bikram or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like in India, there's, guy. he's a fucking he's lunatic. A nut job. Yeah. Um, I did yoga like six times a week for 10 years. So did I. Really? Yeah. It's fun. I, mean, I hurt good. myself though. Oh, you did? Yeah. yeah. I like eventually my back couldn't, I was just repetitive stress. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I started studying Iyengar yoga, which is very alignment based. Uh-huh. And I think it's the reason I never had a major injury. It's because smart. Like, Cause I was doing all that like vinyasa yeah. where you're snapping through all these poses. Yeah. And but, it's usually in the transitions that people get hurt because they're, you're not thinking of it as, a time, you're like, oh, I'm going from A to B. Yeah. But um, you're not being careful or. Right. Iyengar is great because it's like they are very. It's literally like turn your outer left knee and. Don't you a hold those poses forever? Forever. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. But it was. So when I moved to Seattle, this is in Ann Arbor, which is like this decades long center for Iyengar yoga. But in Seattle. BKS Iyengar? Yeah. What does BKS stand for? I don't remember. Bob, Kevin, <laughs> Bob, Sam Iyengar. Bob, Keith, Seth. You know? <laughs> that would be awesome. Bob Iyengar. <laughs> yeah, Bob it's Iyengar. had a huge impact on Maybe the world. Maybe Shree in there somewhere. Who knows? Yeah. But they would literally, you know, like I remember doing mountain pose where you're standing and the senior teacher was like, sh- brought me up to show everyone how I didn't do it right. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I don't even know how to stand. You, you got the end. Yeah. And they hit you with sticks and stuff. But once I got to Seattle and it's all just flow with the music. Oh, and by the way, it's 109 degrees in this room. Uh-huh. Um, I did see people get hurt a lot and I was able to basically, you know, mostly not get hurt, but I haven't, I want to get back and do it more. Um, when I took up running and I was working full time, um, there's wasn't, I started running cause I needed exercise I could do at any time of day. And without having to show up at a class. Plus it's like you can, if you run for 15 minutes, mm-hmm. like you just ran two miles or yeah, well, you know, <laughs> maybe you did. mile and a half, yeah, half yeah. a mile. Okay. But I was running. For me, it'd be like a mile, yeah, like almost a mile and a half. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I yeah, mean, it's I, efficient. I'm always thinking like that. Sometimes you got to fit it in, but yeah, my body's not good at running. No, mine's not either. Actually, I've been doing it for six years. I mean, it's hard on you, man. It's rough. And I, I got injured a lot at first until I learned. Eventually I beat myself up enough that I ended up in physical therapy a couple of times. And, and I realized like you can, there's very few people who have that like runner's body. I know? envy those people. I know. Very, very thin, very lithe. Um, you know, like, like, um, I used to work with a guy, a sort of slight Asian guy who had like that classical runner's body and he was an elite athlete and he would take like 10 mile training runs like four times a week. Um, and and I run like three miles at a time. That's Jeff Bezos now. Yeah. Except he's, he's too pumped. I wonder what he does. He's got trainers. Oh yeah. I mean, he must, he could have like live in trainers. I want to see his home gym. I wonder if he would let me just, he's biohacking it. for sure. He's got to be, I wonder if he has his own cryo chamber. I don't, I, I'm telling you. I can, I can look That's at that guy cool. and be like, he is deep into biohacking. Yeah. And it's so weird because he's so super normal in a lot of ways. Like all the th- people are like, oh, he's so mean. Like he's, he's funny. He's a nice guy. And, but, but yeah, like there's gotta be but okay. some serious shit going on. I'm, I'm sure there's normal, but like a, any, any billionaire. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's like, at what point? Like, I'm just, I feel like I don't understand those kinds of people like just stop dude you did it like right. go, go live your life i think they're they're obsessed 
I think it's a certain mindset where you just can't, you can't stop. Like you want to do bigger and bigger and bigger things. You want to maintain. And you've proven you can do it. You know, like you can, you can do these insane things. Like why not do some other insane thing? That's why I keep wishing he would like tackle health insurance in okay. America. Because he just announced that he's giving like what, 20 billion two, or 2, two billion, billion to, to start. Yeah. To uh, like preschool and to something else. Homelessness and, and preschool. And yeah. I, you know, I will clap for that all mm-hmm. day long. Uh, I don't know why his total net worth is what, like 50 billion it's, or something? Yeah. He's the, I, he's the richest man on earth, which yeah. is super weird to be in a room with and be like, that's you. It's yeah. really weird. You've been in a room with him. Oh yeah. And I just, mean, many times, many times and just been like, wow, that's the richest guy in the it's, planet. Yep. It's the first time I met him, he sat next to me in a meeting and I was like, this is, you know, 12 years ago. And I was like, you've been on the cover of time magazine. Yeah. I didn't say it. I just thought it, it was like, just really surreal. You're not friends, though. No, I think he knows. I mean, he knew my name, but oh. um, but you know, we were not friends. That's not nothing. No, exactly, exactly. You must have done well at Amazon. <laughs> yeah, Jeff Bezos knew your name. I did. <laughs> we didn't biohack together. Or anything. No, no, we didn't. I haven't been in his cryo chamber. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you guys didn't uh, go in his float tank together. <laughs> oh, I bet he does have his own float tank. There's no doubt in my mind. He's yeah. got a float tank. Yeah, he's got multiple float tanks. <laughs> I thought at one point, so he has this thing, this is public, like people who are basically a shadow. So he'll have a person who basically follows him, goes to all his meetings with him and for a year or two, and they're kind of operating as like his second brain, you know, and they're thinking, and these are people who are like really high potential people at Amazon. And they're thinking about like other ideas or things he might not have thought of or asking questions. And when I first met his first shadow, I just figured it was like a ninja. I thought it was a bodyguard because this guy just sat there and never really said anything. And he was very bespectacled and kind of, you know, just this white guy. But I was like, no, I bet he's secretly a ninja. Dude's got like three master's degrees from Yale. Yeah. And he actually, this, this particular one was an ex-Marine, it turned out, which I oh never would have God. guessed. But I, I was just positive that that was, that was just security. <laughs> That's actually a smart, I mean, thinking about all the decisions that probably, you know, funnel through Jeff Bezos' right. life. And all that, you know, cause like when you're the you're running that kind of empire, yeah. that's hard. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, he's the, brilliant, you, but no one's that, no, no one's, one's that, that smart. Yeah, yeah. You, it's almost like you need an extra hard drive. It's kind of how it, how it operates. And it's a considered like a really plum assignment. Sure. Um, but it's also like, I don't think most people don't do it for more than a year. Cause you travel, I think you travel with them. Like you're basically, I don't know. <laughs> it would make a great, like, how many movie. does he have? Does he just have one? One. And then other execs in the company have started that practice too. So like, that would be sort of a funny, like comedy, the shadow. Yeah. The shadow, the shadow it's, it's the, the name is like technical advisor, which doesn't really make any sense. Cause I was like, is this guy advising him on like how to use this computer or how technology works, but it's the shadow. And sometimes they have their own projects on the side. Like I had a friend who worked for, um, Jeff Wilkie, who is like Bezos second in command as his shadow. And she had her own. He actually had a woman do it. Jess only had one woman shadow, but um, she I want to get a shadow. Yeah. If anybody listening wants to be my shadow. I know. I was like, I want a shadow. Have a podcast guest come over and I'll just have somebody sitting to my left. Right. It's kind of like, yeah. I have a friend who did it for a while and he said, it's basically like you're the world's fanciest secretary. Right. You know, and this was someone who had been like the head of our office in China, you know, and then he's like, I, yeah, I basically just followed Jeff around all day. And the pressure though, the pressure seems intense. Yeah. Like you got to really pay attention yeah. and you got to be on your best behavior. You're listening for what he's not hearing and you're, um, I, yeah, I, I and can you ever it. be yourself? 
like can you ever did you ever feel like i'm really just hanging with jeff like you're always sort of performing you want to be like you know like always it's so hard to have like normal human relationships in a work context like especially with like the richest man on the planet yeah yeah there were plenty of people including vps i had where i'd feel like we were just hanging out just chatting sometimes but no not with him but even then there's always like that one element of like i hope i don't say something offensive that they're like telling everybody Tell, yeah, like, tell the wrong joke yeah, or something. Yeah. Which I'm very capable of. Oh, yeah, me too. I remember once like we were chatting with Jeff before a meeting, and I happened – I don't remember how this came up, but I mentioned that I think the third track on an album is usually the best. And he thought about that, and he was like, you're right. And like I still remember that 10 years later. He laughed. He laughed that like that famous laugh. And um, Wait, what is his laugh? It's this really loud laugh that comes out of nowhere. Oh, and it's, I didn't know this. I've never heard him laugh. Yeah, it's this big. It's it's kind of like he's gotten kind of notorious for this, and it's it's this very big like ah you know laugh, and and it kind of just appears, and and it's sort of infectious. Some people say it's frightening. Um, I I'm, never found it frightening. I'm terrified it was... right now. Thinking of... <laughs> but you could hear it down the hall or something. Oh. And um, but I was like, oh my god, you know, I I said something that Jeff Bezos like made him stop and think, and and I felt very good about that. I want to interview him. Yeah. I'll write him a letter. I'm sure he'll read it. <laughs> Come down, Jeff, on your plane. Bring your shadow. You never know. So there's, you can email. It's just like Jeff at Amazon or something. So customers would email him directly, especially if they were having a problem they couldn't get resolved. And there is, like, I think it's a staff of people who read those letters. And there's this famous Jeff question mark email where he'll, if he sees one where he's like, what the fuck? He'll figure out the right person to send it to in the company. And it's just a question mark, which basically means like, Fix <laughs> yeah, and and people, it, it can mean a whole team spends you know the next three days scrambling not just to fix it but to figure out what happened. Yeah, um, and there'll be this very elaborate email sent back to him saying, "Here's what happened," and you know usually it's complicated processes. It's not usually people. It's something went wrong in the system, and here's how we're fixing it. And it's one of those came to my team like the week I got to Amazon, and I was just—it was amazing to watch this. Everybody spring into action, frenzy, yeah. <laughs> and then other people further down the chain start like doing them too, and and it's like, no, you really gotta—you know, you can get away with that if you're a certain, if you're like maybe ten people in the but company. But see, the thing is, though, is that when you're a person like that, you're worth that much money. I guess it's the same thing with fame too. Mm-hmm. Does anybody give it to you straight? I right. guess you might have some close friends. You better have some close friends and some family who can just tell you when you're being an asshole. Yeah, you would hope so. I mean, a lot of the the the, the highest leaders at Amazon have been there for like you know twenty years. It's I think it's unusual. That that like actually that. speaks well to Jeff. Mm-hmm. I'm like whenever there's somebody who is you know achieved a lot and you know is in a position of power mm-hmm. and the people around them. Like and they have a lot of people around them who've been there for the long haul. Yeah, that that seems to indicate that he's not like a complete monster. Oh yeah, yeah. I think there's like there's an incredible amount of loyalty, and and it's not like these people. I mean, Amazon is you know you're in that kind of job. It's highly lucrative, but it's not like these people. Again, they they don't need to make any more money. Um, I think he has such ambition, whether that's for good or ill, you know, there's a lot of controversy about that. I think it's both. Um, but he will let, if you want to do insane things, you know, um, and be well-funded to do them and, and be able to launch projects that can be misunderstood for a long time. Um, like that's the place to be. And Uh I think so he attracts people who want it. Like I worked on Amazon go, you know, this new line of supermarkets where you literally just walk in, take what you want and leave. And, um, I can't imagine anywhere else on earth that, 
I would have been able to do that and have someone be like, yeah, you know, we're going to fund it and people can find it confusing at first and we're patient. And you, but you, I think you have to be like that. By the way, this conversation has gone from like, uh, <laughs> alcohol, drug, right. sobriety to like, let's talk about Jeff. Right. What's he really? But Amazon is a fascinating topic and I think it's applicable or, uh, yeah. of interest to a lot of writers and well, know, yeah, book but, people. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, you know, if you're thinking about a company of that size and scale, and wanting it to remain vital, any mm-hmm. company that becomes uh, big enough. Yeah. I think if you don't actively um, and aggressively pursue experimental behaviors, then mm-hmm. you become monolithic and stuck in your ways and you run the risk of becoming blockbuster video. Oh, yeah. it's really, It gets really hard to turn a ship around at yeah. some point. Um, yeah. I remember early on, because when I got to Amazon, there were probably 5,000 employees in Seattle, which seemed overwhelming to me. And now I think there's something like 40,000. And I remember Jeff Wilkie one day saying, you know, there's going to be a point where we can't turn this thing around quickly. We can't make decisions in an agile way. And that definitely, I mean, it's much more bureaucratic than it used to be because it's massive. I massive. mean, you have to have those structures. But um, but yeah, it still takes massive, massive risks, um, which, you know, I found really exciting because they're, and, but it spoils you because I would hear about other companies like startups who were playing it too safe. And I would think, well, why don't you just let this play out for another five years. And I think, right. Cause they don't all have Amazon's pocketbook. I was going to say, you can take, the, you can take those, you can have a, like if you're, uh, loaded the way that Amazon's loaded, you can push, you know, a couple, yeah. hun- couple hundred million off to the side and be like, this is just the fun money. Right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Like, so we could do these crazy things. And, and of course, you know, Amazon also was very frugal and there'd be a point that he'd be like, okay, this is stupid or this is not working. We need to take it usually not trash the idea but like what's the part of this that works and where can it go but yeah so i would i would get very impatient with other companies and be like they're just not ambitious enough and i was like no 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 they don't have any money (laughs) because that's how the world works you've been in a very very strange place where there's a huge amount of cash flow. Where was it coming from though? Cause didn't, I mean, Amazon was not profitable forever. Yeah, it didn't, it wasn't profitable until it took a long time. Like recently. Yeah. It like, finally like went into the black, like, like a, just a couple few years ago. Yeah. Maybe within my tenure. Yeah. It's um, because of you, by the way. It's probably because of me. You tipped it. I tipped it. They were like, thank you're, God. You're welcome, here. Jeff. Right. Mike drop. <laughs> right. Like a tip. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it's partly that it's so diversified now. You know, there's like the web search. Like when I got there, it was a retail company. Yeah. And it was already world famous, but now there's you know web services and Amazon Studios, which is actually making really good stuff. And um, Amazon biohacking, Amazon biohacking, the Amazon float tank <laughs> business is well, booming. My so when I went to work at Amazon Go, even though I was a longtime insider, I was literally in the ninety nine point like forty fourth percentile for tenure when I left. Um, that's how long I've been. Well, that's how much it's grown, and also how short a time most people stay. Um, Did but, you when you when you quit? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're like, I'm done. Did you, did you cash out? Like, are you, are you done for life? I'm not done for life. No, oh, okay. no. <laughs> I bought myself some time. Yeah. Um, probably if I had lived really close to the bone for 12 years, I could be done for life, but I don't want to do that. Yeah. You know, like that's, you gotta live, you gotta live. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I mean, they, they, it's, it's good. It's lucrative. Um, but I couldn't know what the project was, even though I'd been there forever. So, I had to try to guess and I was having these interviews where they were like 
it was the most theoretical interviews in the world. It was hilarious. Like if you had to do something and you didn't know how to do it, how would you do that? <laughs> I'd be like, well, let me tell you. Right. But I am. Um, so I was trying to guess like what it could be. And I actually did a little slide in my, my portfolio presentation. Like I knew I had some initials and I was guessing. And I remember thinking it could be anything. I was like, it could be telemedicine. It could be health insurance. It could be, um, you know, it turned out to be just like kind of a, a cute, small grocery store. Um, but I felt like at that point, what, what could it not be? It had grown so much. And I think that that has a lot to do with, um, just the way it's the success, the way it's growing. Well, the only complaint that I'm going to issue, I started to say this earlier when Uh we we were talking about his net worth and his recent Mm -hmm. uh, announcement of like this big philanthropic move with the 2 billion Yeah, is I also heard recently um, him talking about like space. Yes. Yes. This shit pisses me off to no end. Yeah. Like enough with space. Yeah. I'm so sick of space. I'm, I'm sick so of sick of space. space and, thing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, this is the, for some reason now I'm seeing, I'm thinking of the hockey team again. Right. And Elon Musk. It's like, like, stop. We get it. Yeah. You know, you're a big thinker. Cause I think that's sort of what it's like. Like my ambition is so outside. Right. I'm in space. I don't it know where you are on the earth. Yeah. I'm on Mars. And it's like, dude, you got a lot of money and influence and there are literally like children oh, who yeah. like are there are flies crawling around. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's, yeah. let's fix this shit here. There was a lot of cringing. I mean, among like my friends too. I mean, it's like, you know, the, the average Amazon employee, you know, we're a very liberal group. There was a lot of like, Oh Jesus. And, and I think it was the way he phrased it. He was like, the only place I can really think to put my money at this point is into space exploration. Uh, yeah, and I remember was. thinking, I was like, did you mean that? Because yeah. that's not the person that I sort of knew, you know, that didn't yeah. sound like him. And I was like, oh, come on. And I actually, that day I sat down and I did back of the envelope calculation of what it would take to test every untested rape kit in America and set up a system. Wait, test every untested? So rape kits, you know, when they do like DNA swabs from women report rapes, there's oh. like huge, there's 15,000 of them just sitting around labs in the United States. Untested. By the way, rape kits are 19.99 on Amazon right now. <laughs> In case you need one. <laughs> and the prime ball. The prime. That can one day shipping. A three pack. You know? <laughs> it's a fantastic deal. And they're just sitting around and like, cause there's no money to get them tested because people don't actually really care if, if rapists are caught. And I just, for some reason that came to mind and I was like, okay, what would it, what would it take? And there's a nonprofit out there working on this. And, and I figured out, and I was being wildly over budgeting for probably 20 million bucks you could not only test every untested rape kit, which has been proven to work, like they actually find rapists when they do this through databases. Um, you could set up a system for tracking and and um, communicate, communicating about them going forward. And I was so furious all day that like he was talking about space. Right. When like we had these super basic things that just aren't happening. And, and by the way, it's kind of infinite how many things there are to fix on this planet. Yeah. So I can understand. I my one, you know. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. But I'm sympathetic to these people who have massive resources and they say, well, you know, I can't be all things to all people. Right. I have to pick my battles and I get it. But I think that they can always, most people can do, including me, mm-hmm. you can always do more than you think you can. Right. Right. You know, it's like, dude, you're worth 50 billion and you're only given two billion. Right. It's like, you know, but far be it for me. I'm not in that position. Who knows what his long-term plans are? He's obviously way smarter with money mm-hmm. than I am. So I don't want to get out over my skis, but I think you know, you drive around Los Angeles, you see mm-hmm. people living on the sidewalks everywhere. Yeah. And you're just like, yeah, this can't be the best that we can do. Right. Like right. We, and like teachers, you know, like on the cover of time magazine, I was just seeing this on Twitter. It's like mm-hmm. 
all these horror stories about how underpaid and oh, yeah. basically impoverished teachers are, whether it's like a third grade teacher or like an adjunct professor mm-hmm. who's like mm-hmm. homeless. And it's like, Oh yeah. What the yeah. fuck are we doing? What are, yeah, exactly. And I think with the money thing, it's almost like at that scale of money, it may be a matter of like, how do you spend it? There probably is a smart way to spend it for long-term growth or something or not, but I, I, I don't know, but I am, um, but yeah, it's hard not to be like, well, you could just solve so many problems, but here's the, here's the check. Here's the check that the, um, the puzzle that I turn over in my mind is like, I imagine myself having a huge amount of money. Mm-hmm. And I think to myself, if like I won the lottery tomorrow and all of a sudden I've got like $300 million mm-hmm. in my checking account, right? Just sitting there. Do I immediately disperse it? Because mm-hmm. there it's like triage. You look around like, where's the most pain right. here, 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 you know, right. like, go, 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 go. Like, but take care of yourself. Eat, mm-hmm. you know, here's a roof over your head. Like here's money for medicine, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Or, do you hire like really smart financial advisors and put like $295 million into their hands and say over the course of the next century, Mm -hmm. I'm going to be able to give away like billions of dollars. Honestly, I think that's what you do. I mean, when poetry magazine got that huge bequest a while back, I remember uh, reading later that Eli Lilly air, right? Yeah. It threw them into chaos for um, a year. It was a fascinating article because like, they didn't know how to deal with that kind of money. They, yeah. they suddenly had been handed this enormous amount of money and they had to like get their shit together. And I think they could have just been like, we're just going to publish three times as many issues or something. And that, but instead it sounds like they were ultimately very smart, figured out how to like keep it going. My dad is a retired Dean and he's looking at setting up a, um, a foundation in his name for a scholarship. And the idea is that you can only ever spend X percent of it I, right. or, or he's endowing it. I didn't, hadn't known how this works. So it keeps going. You don't just, it's not like he's giving them a huge amount of money, but you never run out if you're smart about it. And that's what, you know, what I think Jeff is doing that's smart is I read that that's the preschool part of this. They want to follow a Montessori model in underserved communities. And I thought that was kind of cool because underserved communities so often end up with these rote charter schools that aren't actually teaching kids to think. They're just having them memorize stuff. And I was like, that's neat. If you're taking kids and giving them like this Montessori model where they're actually learning to think for themselves and function, you're you're really investing in the future. And like then. do pottery. Yeah, do pottery, make candles. <laughs> yeah. you know? That's Waldorf. I guess. Weave. Yeah, <laughs> right, whatever. weave, speak German. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's really, it brings up a lot of like complicated feelings. Oh, yeah when you start talking about money and the ills of the world and like how we prioritize and fix things. But yeah. And uh, I mean, Amazon is a company, I mean, and, and living in Seattle, it's, you know, there are people who I worked for Amazon publishing for a while and I had friends from we hired people from New York publishing who's who lost all their friends because they took a job. Um, I mean, with Amazon. Yeah. Because it's like you left the, you, you joined the evil empire uh-huh. and they lost and maybe those relationships came back, but, but, it was a a dire enough and like what and seen as like an evil enough move to make that you know people they'd known for their whole lives like no longer spoke to them and it, for me from the inside it was always a complicated place it was never all good or all bad it's still not That's whether it's a net good or it's just life is complicated yeah and so 
But those those picking centers or whatever, those warehouses are fucking hardcore. Yeah, I've never visited one, but those stories were. It, it made me aware of how much I lived in a bubble, living and working in corporate. Sure. And in the home office. They should make everybody go pick for a month. They used to. They used to make people do it because they just needed the bodies at Christmas time. Go shadow a picker. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, I, Jeff should have to go shadow a picker. Yeah. Well, there's actually a program where if you were at the level I was. Um, or above, you're supposed to take a... It's essentially a class. Now, they don't actually just want you on the floor picking now because you would just fuck stuff up. Like, it's such a system. <laughs> They're like, get this senior VP out of here. Yeah. Um, but it was like a class where you would do bits and pieces of different things and you'd do gift wrapping and stuff. And it, somehow I was supposed to take it or be fired because you have to do it. And I never did it. And eventually they just stopped bothering me. But I regret that I didn't do it because I find that kind of thing fascinating. And um, like... I used to love on Sesame Street or Electric Company when they do the things where it's like, here's how peanut butter gets made and put in jars. Yeah. Like, I just find that kind of, I should have probably worked in operations in a factory, but I, I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah. It's a different, it's a whole, it's a different world than, than corporate. Sure. Well, and it's also sure. like the, the, just the complexity. If you think about the volume of business that Amazon's doing all the different products and the speed yeah. with which they're delivering them and the consistency and like. Talk about operations. I know. I mean, like f things that have to be at certain temperatures. I think about things like perfume or food or, um, and I think I've had maybe one order go really awry and my, maybe I've just been lucky, but like it, they get it right more often than not. It's kind of bizarre. I just had to do some, I had to do a customer service call because I got, like I made a return. Mm -hmm. I had to like return something to Amazon. And mm -hmm. then I got an email out of the blue that said like, we never received this. Oh, so you're going to be charged. Mm -hmm. And I called them up and I was like, well, I sent this back. Mm -hmm. And like, it was like, okay, oh, yep, done. Yep. Like all taken care of. Yep. You know, I did shadow. I had to shadow customer service um, for a day once every two years. And it's like the most fun. So basically you just sit with someone. I mean, they rotate you around. Um, and you know they pick the best people who can also won't be thrown by having it's like me sitting there listening to everything they say. But you have head a headset on, you can hear the customer. And I asked this: Are you on mute? You, you can't, yeah, you you're can't on like mute. interject. You can't be. What I think you should do is <laughs> hi, Christy Coulter here. <laughs> just want to thank you. Just want to thank you for being customer. Thank you. <laughs> and um, the, the, this one guy, there had been a call that was a little bit stressful, and I noticed he had a little Amazon branded Zen, like Zen Garden on his desk with like a little rake and everything. And I said, "Is it? Do you get stressed out?" doing this and he said well i worked for comcast for eight years in customer service before this and my best comcast customer was worse than my worst amazon customer and i was like why because it's got to be some of the same people and he said because the amazon people when they call they know i'm probably going to be able to fix their problem you know yeah. we really empower them take as much time as you need there's no like timing the calls and just fix it and um he was like so even if they're upset like I'm generally able to just fix it. And we also give customers, you know, a lot of slack. I mean, I'm sure there's metrics where it's like, okay, if you did that nine times in a row, we'd be like, look, Brad, you know? Well, that's the thing I spend. I've spent so much money on Amazon in my life yeah. and have made like two returns. Right. It oh, would yeah. be, it would be a really bad business practice to be punitive, to not just be like, I mean, not even punitive, just to not just like do bend over backwards to make it right. Exactly. It's not worth it. Exactly. You right. know, well, make me happy and I'll just keep being your yeah. you know, money yeah. person or whatever. Sitting Customer. with the, 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 your money person, your money giving yeah. guy. Um, the, the Kindle, the people who worked in Kindle customer service were amazing because like, 
you know, you literally get these people calling up being like, my Kindle doesn't work and I don't know why. And they're so, tra- and they'd have their the, that model Kindle in front of them and they'd literally walk through it with the customer. And or just to, give them a new one. Well, sometimes that's what they did. Like if they couldn't just get keep to buying it, bucks. they'd be like, let me just send you a new one. Well, um, weren't they going to give the, I mean, they're basically giving the hardware away for free. Yeah. Because yeah. once people have that, then it's just like a cash you cow. You get all kinds of stuff. Yeah. But it was like, I would just be sitting there thinking, oh my God, this woman just spent, you know, 40 minutes on the phone with someone hmm. getting their Kindle to work. And it's really hard to talk, especially if it's someone who they really don't get what's wrong. You'd have customers who are like, I think it's this and they'd be right. But um, it was kind of amazing. It was like, I always walked away and this sounds like the kind of condescending thing executives say, but I always walked away being like, I could not do that job. Yeah. Like it was astounding. You got to have a certain patience. Yeah. And uh, temperament. Yeah. And then temperament. It was really temperament. I think they hired for that. Like you got to because be- of the branded Zen garden on the desk. Exactly. That must be why. <laughs> Just rake that sand. I knew the VP of customer service at the time and he's like the nicest guy in the world. And he kind of came up through Amazon, like post-college, I think worked in customer service and, and rose up. And, and I was like, that's exactly the kind of thing Tom would um, like, who knows? I doubt the VP came up with the Zen garden idea, but I was like, that has his, his heart around it. And it made me feel good to think taking care of these people. Like Amazon branded, like stress squeezy bowl. Right, right. <laughs> I used to th- say there should be Amazon branded, like cortisol tests. Like I wanted to force everybody to get their cortisol measured. What is that? Again, it's stress. a stress hormone. Right. Yeah. And there'd be times that I was just like, Oh my God, we all need to get our cortisol tested. And then like, see what we can do about it. And, you know, I am going to wager that Jeff Bezos gets his cortisol tested <laughs> every day, every morning it's at through, like, six a 30. He has planted or something. <laughs> his shadow <laughs> right, right. does a blood draw at dawn. Oh my God. It'd be great if his shadow actually like slept in a little cot, like I, co-sleeping. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. No, I'm picturing bassinet. like some sort of sealed chamber or something, uh-huh. you know, mm. coffin like the back cave. Yeah. Uh, oxygen, like an oxygen, <laughs> a hyperbaric chamber. Right. Um, so you're done there. You wrote and published this book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're taking some time. You're yeah. writing another. You're writing a novel. Um, I'm writing a novel, though. My second book is um, probably also going to be a memoir about drinking and stuff. Um, Are you done? Like, have you exhausted yourself on this topic? Do you feel like maybe? Or? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not like I'm not looking for a career that's like writing about sobriety and drinking. Um, it's it's I, it's going to be more about like female ambition and money and work. Because um, that's also what this book it is tees about. It up. Yeah, for people uh, listening who haven't read, you know, it's a it's your drinking and sobriety story, but it's also very much tied to being a woman in the world. Yeah, yeah. So it's so the next book is similar. It's about like a because because drinking was sort of a symptom of the things I was dealing with, but um, but like I've always been very ambitious. I like to do big things, um, and that doesn't always work with being a woman. Like people don't they get very weird about that. Um, so it's going to be about like being about female ambition, wanting to be like a, a force in the world and, and money and, um, and just what it's like to work, um, as a woman in sort of these crazy, uh, environments. I realized I've, I've spent my whole career working for like men with big dreams. Um, I worked for a guy who's trying to cure all genetic diseases in dogs <laughs> when I was very young and which he's still working on it. He's made some progress. It's great. Um, I worked for, the guy who started the all music guide. I worked there for seven years, which was to make a database of every recording ever made. And then I worked for Jeff Bezos. Um, and I was like, that's interesting. Like I never just went and got a normal job. Um, it was always like these, these men with huge dreams. And I started thinking, why wouldn't, why didn't you ever think of having that huge dream? And part of it is I may be the kind of person who makes things better rather than who takes a good idea and makes it better. And that's valid. But also I think that 
you know, you think about like 2% of venture capital money goes to women. Um, and that's not because it's the world of venture capital of startups is only 2% female. Um, so there's something there. So it'll be another memoir. It's not like a business book. It's not um, a polemic. It'll be like this, like funny and raw, hopefully. That's what I was going for and, and real and in my voice. Um, I do have a novel, which I do want to get back to at some point. I was a fiction writer for uh, my MFA was in fiction. And that's what I always thought I was going to write. And I love it. Um, but I feel like this other book is kind of gnawing at me. So, well, yeah, you got to follow it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think the comp, I think the time is ripe for that conversation. I feel like that too, especially with, you know, with, I was, you know, in tech for a lot of this, I wasn't in technical roles, but I was in the tech industry, but you succeeded too. And, yeah. you know, you were able to flourish in those like male dominated environments, mm-hmm. working for those like strong you know, whatever, um, men with big dreams or whatever. Yeah. I made it. It's funny. I don't think I got invited recently to speak somewhere and they said about being successful at Amazon. And I realized that I don't think of myself as as successful. Um, but I, I made it there for 12 years. I mean, by any, by any count, I was successful. 12 years is a long time to work in a corporation. Yeah, It's really a long time to work in any organization, especially like a big beast like that. Absolutely. Well, part of it is that I could change roles. Um, you know, so you can kind of reinvent yourself. I mean, I did a bunch of different things, but, um, but yeah, I realized also that I kind of installed a little man in my brain. I realized this after I left, I said to my husband one day, like, I think I might think like a man now because men were so responsible for my success or failure that without knowing it, I kind of put some little dude in my brain. I would filter everything I thought or said through him before I would say it. There's a little hockey player. He's a little hockey player. He's a little, I picture him wearing a little tuxedo. He's kind of like, has, he looks like, actually I just realized he looks like Poirot. That's a little strange (laughs) for someone who was in tech. I've worked for almost two hours in this conversation to get that admission. Exactly. For me to realize it. There's Um, a little Poirot. There's a little Poirot in my mind who's like, let me say something. (laughs) But, but I really do think I sort of put this filter on and we all adapt to our audience, but my audience was so heavily male and very alpha male that I am. I was like, fuck, I'm a dude now. Like Amazon turned me into a dude and I have to figure out (laughs) who am I? And it's not like, I think male, you know, male and female brains are that different or something, but, um, but it really, I have to figure out how to like think and live. You need to hang out with some beta males like me. Exactly. I've been doing that since I quit. So now I'm hanging out with writers and, you know, like I don't have a job in the garage. It's been kind of awesome. But, um, but yeah, so I, I was like, okay, there's really something to explore there. Like, what does it do like I was successful, but what did it do to me? I mean, partly it didn't, Amazon didn't turn me into an alcoholic, but certainly it coincided with the onset of my alcoholic drinking. It didn't help. Yeah. And work I was stress. there for four years sober too. And I, I made that work, but, um, but yeah, the stress and the, the catastrophic thinking, you know, I, I would love to take a look at like, what, what are those big dream environments like do to people? And what's the, what's the cost of it? Um, even though it's also kind of amazing. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't, give that experience back for anything. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, like, I, I know, I, don't, I know very few people who don't like have like mixed feelings or complain about Amazon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I also know very few people who don't use the fuck out of it. Exactly. Yeah. I, when Manchester by the sea came out, I was the Kenneth Lonergan film. I was seeing it in the theater, by the way, hilarious movie. It, I'm just, kidding. it's, 
it's kind for of. what it is. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, Kenneth Lonergan's <laughs> wonderful. I'm just saying, like, man. Yeah. Heavy. Oh man, it was brutal. I love Margaret. His second film that took like a decade to get released. That's oh, an right. amazing movie. Is it's that a the one mess. with Nicole Kidman? Uh, oh, no. Who's in it? Anna Paquin, Mark Ruffalo. There's a t- Matt Damon. Nicole Kidman may be in there somewhere. I think I think he had blue room or blue chair or something i don't know anyway thinking. it's great it's a mess but it's great or no i think i'm thinking of a noah Baumbach movie i think oh margo at the wedding margo at the wedding yeah that's what i'm thinking god of. that's fine i haven't seen that in a long time yeah. but um but the title card amazon studios came up this is in seattle and people booed and i was like come on you're about to see this movie this is a great film really difficult film like it's not an easy thing to bankroll you know and like you're really gonna sit there and like it just and it felt very performative like very like Seattle virtue gets, signaling yeah that's Seattle what it gets is. super teenage about you i was like why don't you get up and, and walk out and ask for your money back you all seem to be sitting on your asses watching this movie you know and casey affleck starred in it yeah oh god then it was like why well, it's immoral <laughs> to see it i was like you know what i, I get <sighs> it it's tough i'm still gonna go see the movie i think know? casey affleck has a drinking problem Oh yeah, I mean something's going on. There. Like to go with it. I mean, you know, not to excuse behavior. Yeah. But it sounds to me, with my limited understanding of the circumstances, that he was hammered and like crawling yeah. into bed with somebody. Oh yeah. And yeah. It's like not good. Not good. Not good. But like, is he like the devil now? Right. Right. There's a difference between that and like actual predatory. And by the way, behavior. My understanding of his behavior. Maybe he is. I don't want right. to. Right. I don't want to. From Us Magazine or <laughs> yeah. something. Right. I glean this from the pages of Us Magazine in like a dental office. That's but. kind of what I got too. And it was like he was hanging out with Joaquin Phoenix. Probably not a great idea, yeah. um, you know. But but the performance was astounding. Yeah. It was so. It was one of the most real. My wife and I went like we never get to go to the movies like for adult <laughs> movies because yeah. we have kids, and it was like right around Thanksgiving, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. That's and when all the my parents stuff. could watch the kids, and I was like, let's go see a good movie. <laughs> Let's went, go see Manchester. The one <laughs> chance we have to go see a movie, and it's about like a guy who gets like loaded and yeah. burns his house down, yeah. kills his kids. And we're just like, oh my You're God. You're like, wait a second. Like, Wrecked there's something me. to be said for not knowing too much before you walk into a movie, but sometimes you do want to know. I had no idea what I was walking into. Right. And right. like, walked out, and we were just like, do you want to go to Houston's and get dinner? And like, it was like our date night. <laughs> right. And I was like, we sat at the bar, like, not looking at each other. Just, like, <laughs> right, right. Eating fries. <laughs> Like, is this what all adult movies are like now? Yeah, right. Is this how it is? I need, uh, it's weird how much I've fallen out with movies. I used to always go to the movies. Yeah, I, I see know. a ton. I see, I, I go to the Seattle Film Festival every year. It goes on for a month. I buy a pass and I'll just walk I in gotta do that. I gotta get back it's into fun. it. It's because it's nice too. It's like dream time. Yeah, yeah. I used to love it. Yeah, it's great. And you'll see a lot of like, for a festival, you know, it's like a lot of things at festivals aren't that good, but, yeah. but, but it's kind of, things you wouldn't have seen otherwise. And then now and then you'll see like a, a major gem and, um, and just a sense of discovery. And I, I love it. I love movies. I'll, I'll see like virtually anything. Actually I'm pickier than I used to be, but, um, when What's I was good, what's good this year. Um, I loved blind spotting. It's a movie about like the gentrification of Oakland. It sounds like a drag. It sounds like homework. It's really funny. It's about this, these two longtime friends, a black guy and a white guy. And it's the black guy's last day on parole. And so it's sort of a buddy comedy, but it's really cutting and kind so, of so poetic. It's, so it's a fiction. Yeah, okay. it's fiction. Yeah, I mostly see fiction films. Yeah. I loved that. Um, 
I just saw something. You know what's really scary is Hereditary. I don't see many horror films. Oh, yeah. People have been like, I've, for some reason, I noticed there were people like going like multiple times to see this. I've not yet. I'd like to see it a second time, but every time, and it's on streaming now, but every time I think about it, I'm like, ugh. It's genuinely scary. Who's like, in that? Um, Tony Collette, Gabriel oh, right. Byrne. Oh, yeah. Okay. A couple other people. It's it's terrifying. It's It's like, it'll make you feel bad. I feel like there's something happening in the culture with respect to horror. Mm-hmm. Like horror has always been there, but I feel like now it's, uh, it's got more currency than it usually does. Or yeah. that people are responding to it more, or these movies are becoming infused with, uh, more and deeper meaning or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like get out. I remember Jordan Peele saying he thought of it cause it's not, I mean, it's horror. It's horror light. He thinks of it as like a social thriller. You know, that was that's like, a good way to put it. Yeah. And the cool thing about that was the things that happen to the, and hereditary is the same way. The things that happen to the characters are bad, whether they're supernatural or not. So like there's enough horror and get out just from this guy dealing with being like the one black guy in the group. Right. Um, you know, it's like, Oh, these things really happen to people. And in hereditary, it's like all these family dynamics and, and, and death in the family that are just utterly horrifying without any kind of ghost action. So I do think people, it's like, it's gotten elevated as, as a genre. It's also because they're cheap to make. Yeah. And if you get a hint, you can yeah. make a fucking truckload of money. Oh, yeah. Because you you'll can go explore the... space. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You can <laughs> go to Mars with that. It's a horror movie. Yeah. Money. I think the best ones are cheap to make because they're not really. Um... Like, once you see the monster, you know, I don't care if I ever see the monster. Yeah. Um, what was the one, A Quiet Place, that came out this year? It was actually really good about this this world where, and they never really explain it, but it's been taken over by these monsters that just travel by sound and they hunt by sound. They're blind. And so it basically plunks you down in a world like in America somewhere where just, you can't make any noise. And it's about this family. It's Emily Blunt and John Krasinski and she's pregnant. And, um, it's just a few days in, in their, their life. And, uh, it's just so good. It's such a good premise and it's so tightly executed. Sort of like Nightmare on Elm Street. You can't yeah. fall asleep. Yeah. And it's like, you can't, and she's pregnant, you know, she's going to give birth. And, but once you see the you monster, have to give birth silently. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, it's not, you know, it's a monster. It's spooky, but okay, baby's born. Got to muffle the baby. Oh, they, they, and, and the way that they handle that is so, it's just so good. Yeah. Oh, but wow. it was cheap to make because I was joking. That's for real. They got to muffle the kid. Yeah, of course you do. Sure. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, the only thing I was like, really, would you have gotten pregnant? Like. Like the world was just taken over by like sonic monsters and most of the people on earth are dead. Like, I don't know that I'd really be in the mood for sex for a little while. Yeah. But, and and not only that, but to actually get knocked up. But I'm not, I'm not that character. Can't stop nature. I'm not in her subjectivity. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, it's super fun to meet you. Yeah, you too. I appreciate you coming over. Congratulations on your book. Thank you. You're in town for a couple more days. Are you yeah. taking meetings or are you just hanging? I am taking meetings. As one really does. really weird. There's some interest in the book for like, you know, like film and TV and sure. some doing that. And I'm also doing a little hanging. My best friend lives here and um, I'm going to see her and I'm actually going to go have lunch with a friend now and um, about a quarter mile away. Cool. And, uh, yeah. Well, good luck to you Thank and you. Uh, congratulations. Thank you. Okay, that's Christy Coulter. Her essay collection is called Nothing Good Can Come From This. It's available from MCD slash FSG Originals. Nothing Good Can Come From This. Go get your copy now. You can find Christy online at ChristyCoulter.com and on Twitter at Christy C. Coulter. Nothing Good Can Come From This. 
I forgot to ask her if anybody, like if, like within the company, within Amazon, if there is a uh, a nickname for Bezos. Like, do they do people call him like Beezer? The bees? Does nobody dare? I, I don't mean that uh, in jest. I sincerely mean that. It's like a name that like sort of begs for a nickname. But I'm not sure if there, you know, if one of those exists. Was he known as like Beezy in college? The bees. Thanks to uh, Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger and My Tank for the interstitial music. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to... Uh, what? Yeah, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want the app, go get the app. It's available wherever you get your apps. If you want to write to me, it's letters at otherppl.com. Okay, bye. Bye.